Good morning, good day, and good evening. Welcome back to Tech of a Tea. I am, as always, your host, Brody Robertson, and today, I believe, is episode 146. Yes, and today we have a returning guest. Last time she was on with Luna the Fox Girl, but I decided to do this time separate episodes so we can go more deep into their individual topics. Welcome back to the show, us here, Lena. How's it going? Hello, it's doing pretty good. For anyone who doesn't know, like, what you do, I, I'm sure most people have probably heard of you in the Foss space at this point, at least to a little bit, or at least heard of the project you're working on. Give a brief overview of sort of what you do. Um, so I've been working on the Yasahi Linux project, which is a project to bring uh, Linux to M1 Max and the Apple Silicon family. And so I started working on the GPU kernel driver after Alyssa had been working on the GPU user space driver because GPU drivers have two parts. So we had a user space driver in the works, but there was nothing for the kernel. So I started working on that uh, this year, and uh, that's uh, what I've been doing pretty much uh, this whole time. And the last time you were on, it was definitely not in the state that it's in now. Like, we were talking about this just before, but you were just getting, like... So, you had a Python user space driver, is that correct? Yeah, so that was a Python user space driver that does what a kernel driver would do mm -hmm. as an experiment to... Um, because we have to reverse engineer the GPU because we don't know how it works, so... Because Apple um, won't help you. <laughs> Yeah, so as part of that, um, initially to uh, to get a feel for, um, you know, how everything works, first we use a, a hypervisor to, um, like, snoop on what macOS does with the GPU, and that's all based on Python stuff. And so then I use the same code, but sort of backwards um, as a demo to sort of prove the concept that it could work. Mm -hmm. And so this is basically a Python code doing what a kernel driver would do in user space on a development machine that is not the M1, mm -hmm. but is connected to the M1 via USB. So it was this crazy thing where like all the video frames and all the and geometry and all the GPU stuff was happening over USB. So it's basically kind of the worst case scenario for getting anything working well, but enough to at least work out if it can be done in the first place. Yeah, the idea is um, that um, like to get the design of the kernel driver right, I need to understand how the GPU works to a certain point, and mm. it's much easier to iterate in Python on a host machine, um, you know, where I can just run a script and keep rebooting the M1 or whatever, and uh, I can have, like, an interactive shell to debug things and, you know, pretty color printing of everything and all that stuff. <laughs> um, so it's a lot more convenient to initially figure out how it works in Python and then build this proof of concept. Mm -hmm. And then once you have a proof of concept that is like, okay, I can actually run some real apps with this and... It, it, you know, it renders multiple frames and it basically works and it's doing what it's supposed to do. And, you know, you figure things out like um, how to uh, uh, allocate and free memory properly and how to uh, get like the notifications that a frame has finished rendering mm -hmm. and like what the concurrency issues are and how can you do multiple things at once. Like you, I can answer all these questions with experiments in Python mm -hmm. and part of it was running real apps. Part of it was actually just like dumping single frames from an app and rendering them manually in Python, but then I can do more complicated things like doing multiple things in parallel. And so by doing all these experiments, I can figure out how it works and figure out a design that uh, makes sense. And then after that is when I started on the kernel driver. Mm -hmm. So what would you... So the, the earliest thing that was like basically rendering something, like when you would consider it doing at least that basic of rendering a single frame, was that the 
Was that like the triangle? Was there something a little bit earlier than that? Uh, that was the triangle in Python, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was the triangle that was, uh, it wasn't running a real app. It was a frame as in the, the ver- you know, the geometry and the commands dumped from the triangle running on macOS mm-hmm. uh, as the macOS Mesa driver would send to the macOS kernel driver, taking that data and putting it in Python and doing what the kernel driver would do in a Python script and getting the GPU to render a triangle. That was the very first thing that worked. Mm-hmm. That was... It, so last time we recorded, it was five months ago, and you were a bit further ahead at that point. So somewhere between five to six months ago, you would say you was sort of in that state? Yeah, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. That was, I think it was five to six months ago, yeah. Because, yeah, when you were last... Because I, I know we def, you definitely had a Nochi2D work... Like, okay, I wouldn't say working well, but functioning to <laughs> some <laughs> extent, <laughs> because you had the... I think one of the thumbnails I used the um, the glitchy render that you worked right, out right. of force, um, but things have come along a long way since then. I've got a I think a video coming out tomorrow doing sort of an update on where things are at right now. But where where are you at right now? Because if someone hasn't heard, uh, considering like the jump that there's been, I think they might be a little bit impressed where it's at now. Um, so we have a real driver now, um, and it's not like, you know, a full driver that can run the latest Falcon, OpenGL, everything, you know, fancy pants, but it's a real driver that can run OpenGL ES2 and ES3, um, and Mesa is also uh, improved to pretty much that point. Um, so, like, ES3 is not 100% yet, but it's getting there. And basically, we can run desktops, we can run uh, games, we can be playing Zonotic and Quake and uh, Super Ducks Card um, on like accelerated Wayland or um, XORG desktops with KDE and GNOME. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it all works. I think Alyssa was working on getting Firefox Web Render um, to go smoothly. I think, I think it's already there with OpenGL ES3. So, so yeah, it's, it's getting to the point where, you know, this is something you want to use as a desktop um, driver for a GPU acceleration. Is there a release out of RC Linux that has this ready, or is that still sort of in the works? Um, so we want to release before the end of the year uh, because we think it's pretty much there. Um, so right now we're kind of just tying up loose ends, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, it'll be out soon. I honestly think it's like it, it's really impressive how far along this has come along. Like as I've said multiple times, I have no idea what's going on with reverse engineering a GPU driver. Right, like, writing a GPU driver with documentation, I wouldn't have any idea what I'm doing. As some, I, I'm sure many other people are sort of in this state as well. Seeing how far it's come along, going from, you know, you have the hardware here, the hardware has no documentation, to getting where you're at now. I think anyone who's seen that has to be at least a little bit impressed. I don't know what sort of feedback you've had about it. Um, like, yeah, what what is the the feedback you've sort of received about where everything's at right now? Um, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people um, are saying that it works. Uh, like, I, just the other day, I got someone saying that it works better than macOS for one game, <laughs> which is pretty hilarious. Um, to be clear, that's not the case for most uh, workloads right now Mm-mm. for a bunch of reasons. Um, like, there's there's some stuff that is like ten times slower than on macOS. Yeah, I still yeah. don't know why, uh, but uh, you know, we're, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for performance to be figured out. So right yeah, now, benchmarks yeah. don't really mean anything other than it's getting better. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, like if you just run a desktop, it's 
it's so smooth, you know. It's it's it feels like macOS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really really cool. We have seen um, the, the yeah. um the GLMark two benchmark you posted, where I think it it puts it in line with like an RX five fifty something like that, which I, I'm sure you can get more out of that like out of that chip, but just the fact that it's where it's at now, I think is just really cool. Yeah, uh, like. It's, it's kind of funny because like I always get people talking about benchmarks and like is it faster on macOS? How much is it on macOS? It's like yeah, okay, yeah, like yeah. That, that stuff doesn't really matter right now. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But what matters is that like we're improving all of these things about the the whole stack, right? Yeah. Um. So the the fact is like right now it's at a point where um it completely changes the desktop experience um versus not having a driver because not having a driver it's actually surprisingly smooth with the CPU, but you know, as, as soon as you do something like use a full screen window on one of the machines with the higher resolution screens, it's really obvious yep. that it's dropping frames. And then with the GPU, it's just like, no, we can do 4K at 60. It just works. It's just smooth. And that makes a huge difference. And also tear-free video and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I did want to ask about was specifically Wayland, because I know you've said that X11 can be done. Um... But the focus has been has clearly been on getting the like the Wayland version of GNOME, the Wayland version of KDE, things like that working. Why is Wayland I, I know there's definitely this idea that X eleven is like, you know, this giant spaghetti code base, but from your perspective of working with the working with getting these desktops working, working with the drivers, why is it the Wayland is the focus right now? Um so X eleven does work by the way. Um mm-hmm. like right now you can run an X eleven desktop and it works fine. You get tearing, which is expected with the mod setting driver right now, but that's uh, that has nothing to do with this with our part. Um, there's a patch set for the mod setting driver. There's a PR that was just opened to add tear free to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it's kind of a hack for Xorg, um, but it makes it um, tear free with um, some limitations. Mm-hmm. So this is mostly this is less about uh, the GPU and more about how Wayland and Xorg handle the entire concept of getting frames from apps into a composited desktop mm-hmm. out into a display. Not so much GPU, but the just display device itself. Um, yep. Because Xorg is basically this ancient, uh, it's based on this ancient model where, you know, you have a frame buffer and the display is just scanning out of the frame buffer mm-hmm. and you draw into the frame buffer directly, right? And that's why you get tearing. Um, or you like try to copy a frame buffer in just in time when the frame is changing so it doesn't tear. Um, but you know, like there, there's always this race, right? Um, and you're trying to track the uh, frame as it changes on the display device. So your your XOR expects to know, uh, like, get an interrupt on every frame, like mm-hmm. a 60 FPS or something like that. So the M1 display controller doesn't have that. The M1 display controller is based on a model where you give it a frame mm-hmm. and it will switch to that frame instantly on the next frame on the display mm-hmm. and tell you that it finished. And so um, that's exactly the model that Wayland uses. And it's the model that macOS uses. And macOS kind of pioneered this. And Wayland was kind of the, I think, I don't know if it was explicitly the response to that, but it was definitely the answer to the, okay, Xorx model doesn't really fit how we want to do composited uh, desktops these days. We're like, yep. the idea is that every frame should be perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so, so yeah, like Wayland naturally maps and works perfectly on uh, the display controller on M1 devices. XR by default doesn't even use uh, the the page flipping, so it just writes to the frame buffer. You get tearing, 
Uh, with the tear-free option, it does use that, but there's still one option that VSync, uh, as in the frame limit, doesn't work because there's no wait for the next frame operation mm. on the display controller. You only get that when you actually change the display, but Xorg kind of wants that separately. So mm. if you run like a game VSynced on Xorg, even though it won't tear, it also won't limit the FPS to the proper display FPS. Okay. Um, so VSync basically doesn't work on Xorg right now. Right, right. And I'm not sure if we can fix that. It's kind of an imitation of how the whole stack works. So Wayland doesn't have any issues like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not too surprised that X like the things have changed with the way that graphics and display tech is handled. Considering that X11 was, I think the spec was originally defined in 82, 72. It like a very long yeah. time ago. I can't remember the exact uh, year. I've done a full video on X11 nonsense, but a very long time ago. I'm not not surprised that things have changed a little bit since then. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean. We, we've, it feels like we've added a lot of patches on top mm -hmm. and, you know, like workarounds and bypasses for the old stuff to make, you know, things like full screen games uh, work properly. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, like, you know, the, the model is, you still have the old stuff under the hood, right? So you can't get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the problem that Xorg has, right? That you, you can't really, um, you know, get rid of the, the craft. It's always going to be there. Yeah, yeah. So Wayland just says, takes that, puts it in a box, calls it next Wayland and say, okay, yeah, here's our uh, XORG. And by the way, VSync works fine on X Wayland because that's presenting through Wayland, so that's no problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so. I was going to say something that completely slipped my mind. Um, I, well, actually, you know, Wayland, um, I know there's a lot of people that will definitely complain about sort of the state that the general... Wayland experience kind of is right now because there are, you know, there are things that are not supported in the Wayland desktop available right now that have been available in X11 for a long time. And it doesn't surprise me that there is this sort of, I guess, pushback against the use of Wayland on like a general experience. But from what I've seen, it's definitely getting a lot better now. Um, for most people, most of the time, Wayland's in basically a good enough state that you could reasonably use it. Now, when, you know, Fedora and stuff swap a couple of years, like, way too long ago, that's another story entirely. But I think right now, especially with um, the recent changes where you don't necessarily have to have something be frame perfect, where there's the new protocol to do that, and then the uh, new protocol to handle... Uh, fractional scaling, like, passing fractional scaling data properly. Um, I wouldn't be surprised within, like, a couple of years if Wayland is basically at the state where, I don't know, a good, like, 99% of people on Linux are perfectly happy using it. There's always going to be those edge cases because, you know, it's not a one-to-one -one drop in for what X11 is. But, yeah, I... I don't know where I was going with this. I'm just talking about Wayland now. I, I tend to do this. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where I was going with that, actually. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, unless you have something to add to that, you will just move to somewhere else where... Uh, like, I think Wayland and X are right now kind of at that point where they both have a similar amount of problems. Yeah. So it's actually reasonable for most people to uh, to try out both and and see what they like. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I've, like you know at the beginning of the year we were still seeing some issues with Wayland, 
um, like the fractional scaling stuff. Um, I remember I, I tried it on Asahi Linux, and the first thing I did is open up Firefox, and it was blurry, and I was like, wait. Um, so that was like Xwayland on KDE, mm. and there was and it was trying to oh, do yeah, the, like, yeah, 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 like yeah. So KDE fixed that with one stuff, and then with like asking X to do native fractional rendering, and now mm. we have the native weight and rendering, which I think KDE and Qt have always supported anyway, but like in their own way, uh, because Qt yeah, always had fractional rendering. Believe so, yes. Um... Yeah. Um, but probably not standardized in a way that would work with other compositors or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there was no, like, and, general yeah. standardized protocol yet for it, yeah. so KDE was sort of, yeah. like, doing their own thing. And then there's yeah, Gnome where I, it's, I like... I getting worked, but, like, it was not... Yeah, there was something around there, yeah. Yeah, then there's um, Gnome where it's, like, we... We could implement fractional scaling, but then there's GTK, which doesn't support it in the first place, so... Um, I, I know that a couple of people... Very involved in GTK project have said it's probably not going to support fractional scaling until GTK five. So it's going to be right. a while, <laughs> and then you've got to yeah, wait a couple right. of years after that for the desktop to actually be in GTK five. Yeah. <laughs> you know the funny thing is that Apple just cheats and doesn't do any of this. Yeah, how does as Apple far handle? As I know, yeah, um, they only do one X and two X, and <laughs> then they do full screen. Mm. Uh, like, at the display controller level, they just do virtual resolutions that are not the real physical resolution, mm. and then just scale. And that's it. So, you render your desktop at a different resolution than your physical resolution to handle, you know, fractional scaling. Hmm. And, you know, you use more GPU power, on, and it looks a little bit softer, but macOS had always had this sort of, you know, we don't do font hinting, we, uh, we do smooth vector graphics, so we don't care about pixel perfect. Um, you know, like, their entire UI is designed not to expect pixel perfect graphics yeah so yep. it's always been kind of smooth anterior stuff that it doesn't really matter um if you scale it and yeah i guess they just have a good scaling algorithm the display controller and they just uh go with that well apple also is the uh, sort of the same advantage that android has where a lot of stuff is just built in the one toolkit so uh, obviously there is the electron stuff um but Android actually does fractional though. Android does actually do like full, um, like configurable, yeah, but, size DPI, all that. But what I mean is, you don't have like you know ten different toolkits doing all of their own different things. Um, well, you obviously you, you can have that on macOS, but most of the, this problem falls apart when you give people choice. But a lot yes. of stuff is built with the the main toolkit that is expected. When you go with that, there is a lot more. You have a lot more control over what is done. That's uh, why that's, if you like stay, that's always how it goes, right? Mm -mm. Like if you stay just in KDE, everything that's gonna be using the KDE scaling is going to, you know, work nicely. Yep. The second you step outside For of that, the most part. yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, I found a really, you know, I found a really funny race condition. Um, mm. I don't know whose fault this is or how if it's supposed to work in some other way, but mm -hmm. when I start KDE, sometimes at one point five scaling, mm -hmm. sometimes the taskbar is blurry, and. Apparently what happens is that like it applies the fractional scaling while it's starting up. Mm -hmm. And so if Plasma starts before that setting gets changed, it starts at the wrong scaling. And because it doesn't support changing scaling for existing apps on the fly, uh -huh. the, what Achilles seems to do on Wayland is that they just um, scale the output. So you get you know blurry uh, surfaces until you start the app, which is better than nothing. So like I, I agree with that. I think that's <laughs> a good idea. Uh, but then... You better set the, the fractional scaling globally before starting Plasma. So, like, something is, is backwards in the, like, startup sequence there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, th those kinds of things obviously need to be uh, fixed. Well, no software is uh, going to be like... perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs>
<laughs> but uh, you know. No, it's it's could be worse. There could just be no fractional scaling in the toolkit, like yeah. GTK. From my, I, I've heard multiple people tell me that it's not, it wouldn't be that bad to refactor it. Then I've heard other people saying that it would be an absolute nightmare. I have no idea who's actually telling the truth. All I know is it's probably not going to happen. So, I don't Virtual know. Virtual scanning is pretty hard for things that assume integer pixels. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, because, like, there's, especially, I don't know if even websites have this issue. Like, um, I, I use 1.5x and sometimes I scroll Twitter and the DM window starts scrolling on its own. <laughs> and I am convinced that's a fractional scaling issue mm -hmm. where they like set the position of the window and the scroll and then read it back and set it again and do the rounding issues. It just crawls. It's so annoying. <laughs> so you get things like that, right? Like mm -hmm. where like you're rounding down to pixels and back and converting and that just makes everything such a pain. Yeah. Well, one of the main folks that people talk about with fractional scaling is like blurriness, but I'm... I'm yeah. It doesn't surprise me that there are other things that are a mess. Like blurriness is sort of the least of your issues because a lot of a lot of the elements that you do have aren't that big of a deal. Like text scales properly. Any UI elements you have that are drawn in code, so you know, like your buttons that you're probably you know drawing code, that will scale fine. It's sort of only the the rasterized images that are a problem. But I'm not surprised that other issues tend to crop up when you. Don't fully test your fraction of scaling implementation. Yeah, I think the the sort of um, code issues like that are kind of the worst part because the UI elements, I mean, if you have 2x elements and you scale them down to 1.5, it's fine. I mean, <laughs> that looks fine. Um, it's only people who are like, I must have exactly square pixels and like, you know, all my designs must be super sharp and mapped one-to-one -to, -one to my display. And yeah. you know what? That stops mattering with high DPI displays because mm -hmm. you can't see the pixels anymore. So that only really matters for low DPI, and we're kind of moving away from that. Yeah, from... Um, but... Uh, sorry, yeah. go on. Oh, yeah, but, um, but yeah, it's it's more about, like, retrofitting fractional scaling into a system that doesn't already, um, you know, natively base itself on floating-point coordinates and things like that mm -hmm. can get really messy. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't surprise me that it's a, uh, it's a mess. Um... One thing you made, sort of, you, you, you mentioned, uh, I think you did a couple of streams on it, was moving up to another version of OpenGL. So you're working on your OpenGL 3 stuff. Um, mm. For anyone who has, and me as well, who has no idea, like, why going up to a new version of OpenGL matters, uh, what's the big deal with that? Um, it's just more features. So, um, you know, applications, for example, Firefox... Uh, will not enable web render on OpenGL 2, so it will work, but it'll use software rendering for the actual website. Mm -hmm. um, though you do get WebGL, um, but uh, so it's things like that, right? So the um, apps can require certain versions or have more features in certain versions. A Super Ducks card has, I think, three or four renderers, depending on which version you have, and like as you go up, it gets fancier, and the graphics get uh, fancier. Yep. Um, so it's things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And where are you at with the OpenGL 3 right now? Is it because last time so I saw you is... post about it, it was like 90% test coverage or something. So I think OpenGL ES3, which is different from OpenGL 3, uh, yeah. is at like 96, 97% or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and um, I think most of what was missing was, I think it is, I said it was transform feedback and uh, some issues with uh, multi-sampling and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but we have most of it. Um, so for example, we have multiple render targets, which are 
required for the modern versions of NFTGD to work properly. So that's good. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, a lot of uh, apps are really starting to come together on OpenTL ES3. Mm-hmm. That's different to OpenTL3. Um, mm-hmm. And also OpenTL2, which you also don't fully support yet. And that's just about like really old clunky legacy GL features. Uh, because like OpenTL ES is like the cleaned up version of OpenGL. Um, right. And then OpenTL is like XORG. <laughs> right? It's like so old. And it has all kinds of crazy things that make no sense on modern GPUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to emulate them anyway. And the thing is, there are no Open G- official OpenGL 2 or 3 conformance tests. Right. There are only official OpenGL ES 2 and 3 conformance tests. And then there's like an OpenGL 4 conformance test. Mm-hmm. Like 4 point something. So we can't do that, that yet. Um, so we've been focusing on ES 2 and 3 because that's both the most important part. And that's what we have tests for. <laughs> but uh, there is a separate OpenGL test um, called Piglet. And so Alyssa has been fixing stuff there. And I reviewed some of the uh, merge requests um, to fix that. And it's really just random stuff. It's 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 like, you know, telling Mesa to emulate uh, some things that should be emulated and fixing, you know, uh, minor bugs in places and just a lot of very random things. Um, and then I think there's a couple um, more major uh, things that actually need development for OpenDL. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly, yeah, just, just a lot of really old crafty features that we need to either support or just decide nobody cares about and just not support um which we're also doing because there's literally stuff in there that's just like why would anyone ever do this right mm-hmm. so there's at least one code path in mesa that just has a warning message printed that is like the app is doing this thing we don't think anyone cares about this thing it might render wrong because mm-hmm. there's no point right like 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 in spending time on stuff unless we find an app that actually cares about that mm-hmm. so opengl right. has a lot of that right so we're not trying to do 100% OpenGL compliance because it's a waste of time. Right. It makes more sense to work on newer versions um, and implement the stuff that apps actually use. And, mm. um, and so that's why the ES conformance tests are more important initially. Um, and honestly, by the time we get to you know OpenGL 4, that might be the time to switch the Vulkan with Zinc on top. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but right now, you know what's useful to people is OpenGL ES 2 and 3. And you know, the OpenGL parts that work easily on top of that. And so that's what we're doing. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if later down the line you're like, hey, you know what? We actually do want 100% compliance. Why not? We're bored. That can come later if you really wanted to. It's sort of, I would imagine it's a lot more important just to make sure that things that matter, mad, like, are, are working and then anything else, like... Optimization, for example, like uh, this is a whole different thing, but optimization can be dealt with later. As long as things are working, you can deal with the rest of it at some point else. Yeah, the thing is, like, there's there isn't even like a hundred percent OpenGL compliance. Like, as far as I understand it, basically Nvidia is sort of the standard for how OpenGL works because it's so complicated and it has so much craft that there's actually no um, consistent mm. specification that tells you how all of those crazy features interact. Yeah. So. You know, you have all these separate things, and then if you combine enough of them, the spec doesn't actually tell you what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, there, there is no 100% OpenGL compliance other than copying what NVIDIA does. Right. Um, but you know, it doesn't really matter because unless an app is actually doing any of this, nobody cares. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what matters is supporting OpenGL ES and getting compliance there because that's a good test suite and, you know, it's stuff that people actually use. And then, you know, making sure that the things that people actually do on OpenGL 2 and 3 actually work. Um, and then, you know, focusing, uh, like, it's more important to focus on adding 
new TL extensions and incrementing the uh, the version support uh, to add things that people actually use in newer versions, mm -hmm. as opposed to like handling all this legacy stuff that nobody uses, right? Yep, yep. One thing you mentioned in there was the um, Vulcan drivers. That's not something that's uh, a thing right now, but what? So, what is that Zinc thing you mentioned? I've heard other people mention Zinc in the context of Vulcan. I never bothered to like probably look into it though. So Zinc is just OpenGL on Vulcan. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a translation layer, just like uh, all the other you know Vulcan on Metal type stuff that there is. Right. Uh, but that's built on it's built into Mesa, and so the idea is that. When you get to that level of underlying feature support, um, there is one implementation of OpenGL that handles all this craziness once. And then if you have a Vulkan driver for your GPU, you can just run it on that and not have to worry about all the corner cases. Um, so that's the idea there. And it right. supports like modern OpenGL 4 or something like that. Um, so when we have a Vulkan driver that can handle that, then it might make sense to effectively deprecate the current OpenGL 2.3 driver and just switch to wholesale to Zinc on, on Vulkan. Mm -hmm. um, and that was still used, by the way, the uh, at least the shader compiler that we're, uh, that Alyssa wrote, and also all the knowledge we've gotten writing the OpenGL driver. Uh, but it's entirely possible that, yeah, in the future, you know, what we're doing now will be deprecated. But the whole point of this is, you know, the learning experience of understanding how the hardware works and how to implement all these things correctly on the hardware. Yeah. Um, and also the shader stuff, which is going to be shared anyway, which is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, it's not wasted work. A lot of people ask that. It's like, why are you doing OpenGL? We can just do Vulkan and then do OpenGL on top of Zinc. Well, because doing Vulkan to the point where Zinc is going to work is going to take a much longer time than OpenGL, and it's a lot less incremental than OpenGL. Right. So it makes a lot more sense to figure all this out with OpenGL and go, you know, step by step. And then in the end, you know, if we have to throw it all away, that's fine because we already, um, like, we, we got there, you know, through a path that makes sense and that we could follow to to get to that destination. While if you say make a Vulcan driver now uh, from the beginning, you know it's like what? Where do you even start? Right? Like mm -hmm. it, it's too much stuff has to work at the same time for Vulcan to work. Right. You wouldn't build a uh, a bullet train before building a, a steam train. You want to have that like yeah. fundamental. You know this. We understand how a train's supposed to function. Then we can build the more complex stuff yeah, on top exactly. of that. Yep. Yep. And since Vulcan is going to take longer. This means that, like, today, you know, hopefully this month we can release something, <clears throat> sorry, that people can actually use and get, a, you know, an accelerated desktop. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. that's really important, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's why, that's the answer to now, why why not Vulkan. Um, but Ella is working on a Vulkan driver, mm -hmm. um, and that runs, uh, that's already, um, you know, she's working on Mesa, so it's, it's on the same code base as what we're working on. Um, and I have fans for the kernel site to support all the features that Vulkan needs uh, eventually. And so the idea is that uh, my kernel driver is not going to be upstreamed until we've settled on an interface that should support all the future Vulkan features. Um, so um, that's one reason that people ask me, it's like, why is your driver going to be upstreamed? Um, Linux has a policy that the interface between user space and kernel space can never be broken uh, mm -hmm. in, in terms of backwards compatibility. Um, and so that makes it very hard to fix uh, that graphics driver design. Mm -hmm. um, but making the good design from the get-go is also hard. So that's also an, a different road that, um, that I'm walking, right? So the UAPA that I have now started off as a prototype, and I've been cleaning it up into something good enough to um, ship to people. And it has a version check. So if you run a driver that is mismatched with the kernel, it'll just fail. Same as like with NVIDIA and stuff like that, yep. uh, which is not a 
upstreamable, but it's what we want uh, for development because it means we can fix things, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so whenever we discuss freebies, we're going to have to tell people, make sure you upgrade all our packages at the same time because if you upgrade Mesa and don't upgrade the kernel, it's going to stop working. And also when you upgrade, probably new apps will stop launching until you reboot. That's just how it is. Like that's that's part of being on the bleeding edge of a um, you know, non-upstream kernel driver. Yep. Um, but this time I have a version check, so it's not going to like corrupt or something. It'll just stop working. Yeah. Um, but, um, but you know, like that's the state, that's the, the work in progress state, right? And then I'm going to be modifying that UAPI to support um, the features uh, that Vulkan what needs. What is a like... UAPI? Yeah, UAPI. It's the, the API between the user space and the current ah, space. Yep, okay. Because you, you so were just it... throwing out term out there without saying what the, the U was. Sorry, sorry. So yeah, it's called the UAPI. And uh, so that has to be stable when it's upstream. So I'm going to be working on improving that to add things like um, multiple command queues and um, uh, things like uh, there, there's a thing called sync objects, which is where um, you can set certain things to be dependencies for certain other things. So you can queue work on the GPU and say, um, you know, when, but even across devices, I can, can say, you know, okay, when a frame comes in from a webcam, then run the GPU render job that will render this Discord window, which will then enable the compositor to render the whole desktop, which will then enable the display controller to present the frame. And in theory, if all this magically worked as it was supposed to, uh, you could have the CPU asleep the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, in practice, that doesn't work um, unless you have like a lot of very overcomplicated hardware support for all these things. Yep. But at least you can have the user space apps asleep and have the kernel do all this uh, chaining and dependency management. And so that's the idea that the UAPI is going to support these um, uh, these sync objects they're called that let you chain things like that and have dependencies. Um, and the kernel will manage, you know, triggering the GPU driver when the uh, webcam driver has a frame and that kind of thing. And so that has to be added for Vulkan because Vulkan needs these for, uh, you know, the it also exposes this for the user to use, like in games, like, you know, render this, render this, and once both of those internal frames are ready, then combine them with a post-processor shader, all that kind of stuff. The game still these days needs uh, all the same stuff. Mm -hmm. And also compute is another thing we're going to have to add, uh, both because a lot of people want it and because uh, we're going to need compute to emulate some GL features that the hardware doesn't support. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, another cool thing is that... Um, I don't know if you heard about this. Carl has been working on Rustical. It was, uh, it's already released in Mesa. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Rust uh, new OpenCL stack in Mesa. So that should Very also pretty much... That. Yeah, that should also pretty much just work on our driver once we have the basic compute support because it's all based on the same uh, shared shader infrastructure that Mesa already uses. Um, so I'm also really looking forward to that. Um, and yeah, that also needs to API changes to support uh, creating compute command queues in the kernel and submitting jobs and all that. Um, and then also memory management, the Vulkan needs more advanced uh, memory management, which is going to need a, a bigger revamp of the, um, you know, how the kernel does all of that. Mm -hmm. So it's all these changes that we're planning because we need them for future stuff like Vulkan. And they don't necessarily have to wait for the Vulkan driver to be to that point, but I do want to at least have the drivers, um, you know, using the features so we can prove that they work. Yep. And, and yeah, so that, that's all the work that's going to be happening before upstreaming. Um, because that's sort of the process that you have to follow. Yep. Well, you sort of gave like a thousand different directions to go there. Um, Sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> the more that you talk, the less that I have to talk. Um, <laughs> um, so you've said a lot in there about 
Vulcan drivers one day, Vulcan drivers eventually. If you you probably don't want to even remotely give a time frame because then someone's going to hold you to that. If you had to imagine, let's imagine a theoretical where you can actually work this out. If you had to imagine when Vulcan drivers could possibly be a thing, how long do you see that being out for the project? I I have no idea how to answer that question. Um <laughs> But I what I will say is that my hope is that by around the middle of next year, we have at least enough of a proof of concept to prove that these UAPI features work mm -hmm. and function properly. So not necessarily a Vulcan driver that supports anywhere near compliance, but at least that runs can run demos that use these features mm -hmm. and prove that all of this works as intended so that we can stabilize the UAPI and submit it upstream. Yeah. That's my hope. I have no idea if it's going to happen. I think it's uh, plausible, though. Um, you know, just need to work together to make sure, uh, like with Ella, to make sure that uh, we get this uh, all this backend stuff hooked up. And, yeah, I mean, she's already running VK cubes. I mean, Vulcan, you know, it's at the cube stage, at least, so it's not like <laughs> there's no Vulcan driver. Um, but, oh, um, right, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have the cube in Vulcan, <laughs> um, so it's not zero. Um, but um, obviously, there's a lot of work to be done to support all the fancy stuff. Yeah. So I hope we can at least have the proof of concept level um, for the you know for the UAPI features um, by around the middle of next year, just so that it doesn't block um, starting to upstream the driver. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, as far as like Vulcan that you would actually use with games and with Zinc and all that, and it would work at least as well as the current OpenGL does. I really have no idea how to answer that question. It, it could be sooner, it could be later. Um, because it depends on, you know, on, on how much time people have to work on it and all that. And um, the thing about the, all the, this kind of project is that it depends a lot on, you know, people um, like volunteering their time and, yeah. you know, people becoming interested. Like Ella just showed up and, and started working on Vulcan, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, not, it's not like we asked her. So, um, you know, things like that. Um, so I can't answer that question, unfortunately, but that's kind of my hope. What, you mean your games are more complex than a blank cube in an empty space? <laughs> One thing I did want to ask you about, because you get a lot of attention, you know, being a, a VTuber doing all this, doing your, what, 10, 12-hour streams. Um, obviously, you get a lot of attention, but you mentioned there is a lot of other people involved in doing this as well. Obviously, there is also a lister, and a lister does get a lot of attention for a lot of the other stuff that she's involved with, but... Who else do you think sort of deserves more attention for what they're doing that no one really hears that much about? Uh, I think there's a lot of people in the Asahi team that, uh, like, others don't hear much about. Like, Jan Grinnell talked Alyssa's uh, DCP driver, which is the display controller driver, which has nothing to do with the GPU. Um, and that's what we need. Like, that's required for the GPU to actually run a desktop. So we, we can't run a desktop with the dumb display driver we've been using until now. Mm -hmm. Um so Jenna's been working on that. I helped out a little bit recently, mostly by deleting code. Um, and so it had emulation for this vSync stuff for Xorg, and it was broken and it was actually breaking it. And I took it off and it fixed it, but then there's no vSync, which is, I think, what you're actually supposed to do. Um, but um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, he's been working on that. Stan's been working on USB 3, on a lot of other random stuff. Uh, also DisplayPort output, which is not uh, shipping yet, but it's, uh, it's in the works. Um, and then it says that Ella's working on Vulcan and she almost never gets mentioned, but that's going to be a very big thing mm -hmm. pretty soon. Um, and, um, there's, uh, I mean, of course there's Mark and that kind of, you know, keeps everyone together. 
Um, and then, um, well, um. I'm sure you just keep going all day with this. <laughs> sorry, like, yeah, I mean, there's like no, 10 no, minutes working on the speakers with Povic doing the whole audio system stuff. Um, and then someone, who, what was the name? There was, there's someone doing, uh, I think it was Alan or something like that, working on the, um, Mural engine, which is really surprising because I didn't know if anyone was going to sign up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, like no one in the main team kind of had an interest in that. And then someone just showed up. It's like, I'm going to figure out the neural engine, which is really cool. Um, also, apparently it can be used for image processing too. So I wonder if uh, there's more than, uh, you know, just sort of neural network things that it can do. And so that can mm-hmm. be kind of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, the, yeah, it's the thing is, um, anyone is like welcome to say, I want to do this, right? Um, and, and so there's that there's a whole team of people like that. Um, it's just that everyone wants to hear about the GPU trip. Well, yeah, the, the the point I was getting at was the work that you're doing is like, it's it's impressive to see. It's it's, it's easy for someone who has no idea what it, what goes into this project to see. Hey, look, KDE works now. Hey, look, I can play Zenodic at ultra settings. Hey, look, you know, um, I don't know. Let's say one day you have OpenCL working, and then I don't know some compute stuffs happening. What you're doing looks really impressive, but there are less visually impressive things that are going into this project as well that are just as important to getting a a good experience with this hardware. Yeah, like um, someone uh, recently uh, uh, like submitted the keyboard backlight driver, and it's like one of the simplest drivers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also their first time uh, reverse engineering uh, that kind of stuff and, and writing a driver I honestly for had it. no idea the current Max had backlights. <laughs> <laughs> that looks so, so many people were asking for that, right? And you think it's just the keyboard back, like, yeah, but people really appreciate like having a keyboard lit up in the dark, right? Yeah. It's even stuff like that. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask is sort of, I don't know if, how much attention you pay, to, uh, pay about this, but what sort of reaction have you gotten from doing this work while being a VTuber. Because there is a lot of people I've certainly noticed, at least in my comment section, who have no understanding at all what this is. Someone asked me if Luna was an AI the other day. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what sort of reaction have you gotten from... Uh, yeah, from, just from generally... Uh, obviously, your streams are very positive. Like, I'm, I'm sure you've had the occasional troll shop from time to time. But, um, yeah, it just how's that sort of gone for you? So the actual streams, um, I actually don't really get that many trolls. Um, mm. Like, at the, at the beginning, I got a few. I don't think I've had to ban more than, like, four people or something like that. Wow. Not counting not counting the porn bots. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, are, yeah. Like, there's every yeah, day. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's just YouTube. But, um, yeah, I mean... Pretty much, uh, yeah, people are very, very nice, and I really, really appreciate that. Um, and also very helpful, like, in, in my streams, especially when I started working on Rust. Um, I should mention that, because, like, until the Rust part, I was working with things that I was familiar with, Python and C. Um, I'm, I'm a Rust newbie, or I was. And then you um, became a Rust shoe. <laughs> and, like, I, I, I got so much help from the Rust community, both um, offline and in this and the uh, like Zulip and uh, like directly on my streams uh, from viewers, um, you know, developing this whole um, like object model for the GPU to make it all work reliably and have the memory safety and all that. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how to like 
architect that in Rust. I thought it might be possible, um, but like I couldn't have done it myself, mm -hmm. not with my Rust knowledge at the time. And so, you know, that was really, really cool mm -hmm. um, that I could get all, the, all this help from uh, so many people. And even today, you know, people are like, oh, you can do this in Rust. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, as far as the comments, um, I get a lot of really cool comments uh, directly, like over DMs on Twitter, on my YouTube channel. Um, there's a lot of people that give, from the very beginning, you know, send me messages like, uh, you know, thank you so much for uh, doing this. You're an inspiration to me and you inspired me to go into kernel programming or computer science or something like that. And that, that just makes me really, really happy. So mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate that kind of stuff. And I'm really happy to be getting that kind of, uh, you know, those kinds of comments. Mm -hmm. And then I guess there's Hacker News. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So how can you use a fun place? I think it's kind of interesting that it seems to be very split between people that really don't get it mm -hmm. and people that think it's really cool. Um <laughs> and and sort of they always fight it out in the comments every single time. And um I like I don't know. I mean, um another thing is that a lot of people seem to like um uh, confidently answer questions in you know <laughs> like wrongly confidently answer things um um because uh you know the, the whole vtubing thing is very different for different people mm -hmm. um like we each have our own reasons to do it and uh you know it's just a form of self-expression I, I think uh one comment i liked is uh i don't remember if this was a uh, hacker news or uh reddit but someone mentioned that it's it doesn't be any other. different <laughs> hacker news is just orange reddit <laughs> Depends on which subreddit. The rest of subreddit is usually pretty nice. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Um, Go to our slash Linux though when you change your mind. <laughs> but anyway, I think that they said it's like, this isn't really any different from someone on a forum with an anime avatar. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, the equivalent in uh, in 2022. And I think that's a good way to put it, right? That it's just the image you choose to represent yourself online and the name you choose to represent yourself online mm -hmm. and, um, and the way you choose to express yourself. And... You know, the reasons for that is, you know, might be different for each person, but this isn't new, right? Like people have been adopting, um, you know, different virtual um, appearances in different ways since the dawn of the internet, pretty much, at least since we had like images. Um, so a lot of people like seem to have this sort of visceral reaction that this is weird and new. And I think that's a good place to to, to think about it from. Mm -hmm. It's just like, no, we, we've had this all the time, you know, since... The dawn of the of, of forums and and you know all that stuff uh, in the late nineties and two thousands. Mm -hmm. It's just that now it's animated and on YouTube and we make videos about it and you know that's it. It's not that different. We the only difference is that you have like we've got this tech to do you know uh, uh, the moving two D images. Uh, yeah. if, but it'd be no different. Like what you do on your streams would be absolutely no different if you just did the exact same thing without a face cam, like. I mean, the actual work would be the same. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people really appreciate the, uh, like, having the a view of the person doing things mm -hmm. um, because it makes it more, um, you know, engaging and friendlier. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so I credit a lot of that to, you know, all those nice messages I get. So I'm really happy doing this. Um, and I think a lot of people also don't understand, like, why it makes that kind of difference because they're just like, you could just not show your face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's not the same. <laughs> There is a lot of, a, there is a, 
we could go into a lot of the um the research that's been done over the years over um why having some sort of some sort of avatar, some sort of face cam, something there is just better for making content. Like this is something that is well established at this point. There's no point even having the discussion about whether having just no face cam is better. It, it, it's not. Like there's a reason why. There's a reason why every single streamer now has a face cam or does VTubing. It makes for a better content. Yeah, and like, and it's not just like because some people think about it from the oh, you get more engagement and therefore more money or more ad views or whatever, or more, uh, you know. Like, people are more interested in the stuff I do because I'm mm -hmm. doing it like this, right? It's getting people interested in computer science. It's getting people interested in computer science and programming and kernel programming that wouldn't otherwise and that wouldn't have gotten interested if I were just a faceless streamer yeah. because it wouldn't have been as engaging, right? Mm -hmm. So the engagement stuff isn't just about, um, you know, the numbers under the video. It's actually getting people interested in the subject. And so that's why I keep doing it, right? Like, I don't actually care about engagement. I don't even know how I ended up with, like, 17,000 um, Twitter followers. I was 70, not expecting 000, that. Jesus. <laughs> I was not expecting that. And, like, that's not my goal. Um, but the only thing I can say is that, like, as that number goes up, so does the number of people leaving comments like that, mm -hmm. and saying that, like, I, I helped them, you know, get interested in this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. If that's what this is resulting to, then I'm going to keep doing it because, mm. yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, just working on reverse engineering GPU drivers is definitely, is definitely weird enough to get a bit of attention, but it also being done by a cat girl is going to get a bit more attention. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, the cat ears kind of came later, but... Well, yeah, um... that's a new thing. I, I did notice that you rebranded your Twitter. <laughs> Actually, wait, that reminds me of a hilarious. Oh, that reminds me of a hilarious thread I saw on Twitter. <laughs> hilarious thread I saw on Twitter. So, so I, I think it was about um, the recent stuff about like KD running and things like that. Uh, someone said uh, they're like, "Oh, it's so impressive how much work uh, RC Leader has done on this." Uh, so, so no, they said uh, they used the uh, new name you got on Twitter. They said Linia, and someone. Um, Someone corrected it under it, it with like asterisk Lena, and there was like this giant thread just discussing like just the merit of VTubing. I mean, that's that's part of the fun, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and it's uh, and it's also um, you know, sort of um, it helps break this idea that you know if you are doing this kind of work, you need to do it in a certain way and be a certain kind of person. Yeah. Uh, because you don't, because that has nothing to do with, uh, you know, with the work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so if, you know, that's also why I do this because it's like, well, I'm doing this because I enjoy doing it like this. And yep. if you want to do something like that too, you can do it too, right? Um, I've, I've seen comments like, well, no one's going to take you seriously, you know, in technical circles, if you are a VTuber, um, <laughs> you know, and doing it this way and whatever. Well, um, I mean, I gave a presentation at the Excerpt Developers Conference. And the people there took me seriously. Yeah. Um, and I've been <laughs> on video some... calls with, you... like, Mesa developers. Didn't you have the witch hat on as well during that one? Or was that a different... That was, that was the first one, yeah. <laughs> that was the... That was the... Um, the the uh, surprise oh, for, uh, for the talk. <laughs> um, I rigged it the day before. I'm, like, a members-only stream and spent, like, like, nine hours on it or something. Mm -hmm. uh, including fixing, you know, T2T box. <laughs> and... Um, 
Yeah, no, that, that was the, you know, the, the sort of, um, I mean, I say joke, but I kept it on the whole month. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you know, let's have the whole, um, sort of, uh, sorcery thing, uh, you know, theme going on with this, uh, with the GPU reverse engineering. So mm-hmm. we just made the talk theme like that and I got a hat. It's pretty good. It's, well, it moved. I didn't, I actually haven't, um, watched the talk yet. I didn't realize the thing moved. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, I, I added the physics. Like the ribbon on the side there has like six different chained uh, pendulum nodes. It's pretty cool. I was just paying attention. I wrote the physics engine for InnoTTD. Oh. I was just paying attention to the bat. I didn't pay attention to the ribbon was moving. Yeah, the bat like jumps around all over the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. The only reason I, I, I asked about the uh, reception you've had... I don't know, maybe, maybe they just like to bother me about, whenever I do a video about RC Linux, maybe they just like to bother me about, like, who you are. Because I'm not going to name the person, but I have had a certain disgruntled GPU developer on a certain project uh, who was really bothered by the fact that you'd done all this work and they couldn't find any sort of discernible previous work that you had done. And they're like, how is, how is this a thing that exists? This person has no history. And somehow trying to use that to discredit the work that you've already got? Like, I, uh, I, I don't understand. I mean, I don't know. What to, like, I, I hadn't done any GPU work before this. It's, it's, you know, just kind of picked it up as I went. I mean... At least it helped me out a lot. I mean, you, you, obviously, like, I mean, I have her on Signal and everything. I mean, we we, mm-hmm. we talk a lot. We have calls and stuff. So a lot of people were confused when I started working on this. They're like, what? Isn't Alyssa working on that? We're working together on the same stuff. Um, I took down my, uh, like, intro stream that, like, you know, it was all reading me and not her. I mean, obviously, that was a joke. Um, but uh, we are, you know, we've been working together uh, since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, like, uh, but, I mean, as far as, like, personally, I didn't have any uh, GPU experience before this. Um, I just kind of picked it up as I went. Um, and the thing is, like, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, well, yeah, the, ultimately what really <laughs> matters is the work that you've got now. Yeah. And um, I was going to say something else. Oh, yeah, someone, I remember another comment on Reddit. Someone said that I must be, like, an, a secret Apple employee working undercover or something like that. <laughs> it's like, I wish... Uh, yeah, no, the things people come up with are, are kind of funny sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's kind of like, people just want to know who is behind, they, they don't just want to accept that, hey, this is how you're portraying yourself online, they, they're just obsessed with finding out who, you, like, who is behind the cat girl? We must find out. We cannot just let, we cannot just let the work exist as it is. We must find out more. to answer that question because like this this is who i am this is you know how people know me in mesa mm-hmm. and the colonel in <clears throat> like every, like like it's not like i'm putting on a show for youtube and, yeah yeah and then there's like another secret mesa developer like you know like like actually doing the work right like i i had a, i was on a video call with jason extra and then that is <laughs> the same I'm, as i'm doing right now right like this isn't <clears throat> you know it, it's not acting for youtube it's just uh it's just who i am right if and, you um, act for hundreds of hours while developing GPU drivers, that's actually really impressive, and you should probably not be a developer. You should probably just go to acting. I'm actually not 
actually terrible at acting. Like, I, 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 that's, by the way, the, like, the, the cat ears thing was more of, like, a, you know, a joke on purpose. Mm -hmm. And I'm really bad at, like, consistently, like, playing that role on my yep, stream. Yep. That's how you can know that I'm not an actor, right? <laughs> like, I'll say the nya at the end and stuff. And, like, the first day, I, I, I kind of got into it. And then, like, you know, a week later, like, completely forgot. <laughs> I don't think there's any any VTuber out there that keeps their character up. Like I, I don't <laughs> even the ones who are dedicated to their character, eventually it slips you. Know, know what? This is too hard. I'm just gonna go back to talking normally. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, like I I'm not it's 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 not like I'm playing a party or anything. It's just like I'm just doing my development work. Yep. I just chose to do it like this because I enjoy it and because um I mean, the feedback loop of, uh, of what I'm getting from people is really positive. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just going to keep doing it. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's no, like, deception or big secret or whatever. It's just, it's just me. Mm -hmm. It's just you and the work that you're doing. Pretty much. And that's the other thing is that people are saying, it's like, how is it possible that you do this? Um, watch my streams, right? Like, it's all on there. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. see how I started from, like, nothing and got to where I am. I mean... It might take a while to watch them all, but, like, it's, it is documented. <laughs> a while's one way to put it. I, I... Wait, if I go to Social Blade, it should tell me how many streams you have, and then I can work out how many hours you've streamed. Because it's too many. Actually, one of your streams is, is more than I stream in a week. Uh, Social Blade, let me see. Uh... 58 uploads. Oh my god, there's 58 uploads. Um, let's just say at least three, four hundred hours. Just Yeah, probably. <laughs> might, might be 500, depending on when I really got into the 10 plus hour streams. Mm -mm. Yeah, that's... That, like, that, just, just the streams alone is kind of crazy to me. Like, how do you... How do you, like, manage your stream? I've not actually sat down and watched an entire one of your streams. I know. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But how do you, you know, handle your streams? Like, do you take a break at some point during it? Do you get some food? Do you, Are you a crazy person? Yeah. Do you just go 12 hours straight? How do you do it? No, um, so I, I, I take um, brief breaks. Um, I do eat on stream. I People seem to enjoy it when I do, like, eat the invisible food thing. So I do that. Um, I, so I usually have a snack um, towards the maybe two-thirds uh, portion of the stream, and I I have lunch before my stream, so I always start at 3 p.m. Mm -hmm. um, and I do have water, of course, and, uh, you know, tea and that kind of stuff. Um, and I take very short breaks sometimes, you know, to go to the toilet or just uh, take a very quick walk or just if I need to, like, refill my water and all that kind of stuff. Um, but um, I don't take any uh, long breaks, except that one time there was, like, the Epic Cube on Rust on the next stream, which was, like, I think it was, like, 15 or even 19 hours in the end and that got broken first when youtube crashed because oh. youtube like streaming crashed that day mm. and when it crashed um i told people okay i'm gonna go to the convenience store buy dinner i'm gonna eat dinner and see if it's fixed and then i'll like redirect or something and, and continue and i split i split the stream up um that was the only time i've taken like a proper dinner break um but that's fine because you know i have enough snacks to to last and then i usually have a bit more dinner after the uh, the stream and it's fine. So that's mm. usually what I do is I have lunch before the stream, I have a snack about two thirds in, and then I have, you know, 
a lighter dinner after the stream, and that's the, that's the pattern. Um, and a lot of people ask me, it's like, how can you do this for so long? So streaming actually helps me concentrate somehow. I've um, heard other people say that as well. Yeah, like, because I can't go, you know, goofing off or, you know, starting to chat to people or yep. uh, watching YouTube videos or something <laughs> like that. Um, but also just the feedback from people in the chat also helps. And depending on how concentrated I am, I'm better or worse at, um, you know, following the, the chat. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also tried, um, you know, over time to make it more engaging just by talking more about what I'm doing, which um, also helps me sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, that's not that particularly difficult thing, but it does take some time to get used to uh, to, to doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that I try to keep, um, you know, try to keep up more these days. It's just kind of um, keep people a bit more in the loop because I know it's very hard to follow what I'm doing already if you're not already experienced with this. Um, so, you know, anything I can do to help um, people find it more interesting, uh, I will try. Um, but that's pretty much it. You know, I'm really just working, um, trying to concentrate on, on what I do and... Uh, and trying to talk, uh, you know, my way through it. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I, I definitely have a bad habit of uh, goofing off when I'm supposed to be working. Um, like, it takes me a little bit longer to plan out my videos than it probably should. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, a couple of YouTube videos here, a couple more YouTube videos, a couple more YouTube Yeah, videos. I'm just going to watch this one and this other one and oh look another one popped up in the recommended feed and hey, yep. <laughs> yeah i know i know the feeling yeah so streaming helps a lot with that um and like you know some people ask me it's like do you do you um do like part of your work streaming i stream almost all of my work mm -hmm. um i sometimes do like you know git uh, management or fixing some particular bug or some random thing off stream um and you can probably find the, you know, the git commits uh, with the times to tell you that. But um, most of what I do, almost all the important stuff that I do is uh, on stream. Mm -hmm. And part of it is just that, is that I concentrate on stream better. Um, there have been at least a few, I think it was like last week on Thursday, Alyssa nerd sniped me with a problem. And I spent like all day on that off stream. <laughs> so I basically did a stream without streaming. That's Yo. rare. Um, I almost never do that. So... People are getting pretty much um, all my work on the stream, which I mm. think is important because there's no like secret, you know, like I'm I'm really preparing to get this all like because um, you could do that, right? You could you could like pre-prep for a stream and kind of know ahead of time what you're going to find and and turn it into a show, uh, which yep. might be um, might be more engaging and might mm -hmm. get, um, you know, people more interested. But it's also kind of lying, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because then you are presenting that you are doing all this stuff. Um, you know, in a short time when you actually prepared for all of it. Right, I don't do right, that. Right. Um, so, yeah, but you get, like, I, you know, my, pre my stream prep is, like, 15 minutes before I turn on the computer, turning everything on, and if I'm going to be working on a particular thing, I might, like, clone the Git repo or install the OS. Like, for the M2, I was halfway <laughs> through a, a reinstall, a last-minute reinstall because I kind of messed up and stuff like that. But I'm not actually doing any of the coding or reverse engineering um, mm -hmm. before the stream, other than, as I said, the few... Uh, you know, cases where I did a bit of work off stream, but not in preparation, just because it happened to be uh, interesting at that point. Right, right. Um, or because, you know, maybe something that Alyssa asked me to do, and it was, uh, you know, like on a weekend, and yeah, I'll just do it tomorrow, yeah. I mean, that does happen, but mm -hmm. um, the, the vast majority of what I'm doing, I'm doing it on the stream. Yep, yep. Well, I, I think it's important, like, it sort of depends on what you're trying to achieve with the stream. Like, your stream seemed to just be, 
you know, as you said, you're just working. But if your goal is more to do like a, you know, like with the XDC talk, it's a demonstration of what's yeah. going on. Like that's something that makes a lot more sense to go and prepare then. Yeah, so I did, um, I do, I did do like a presentation and Q&A stream where I had an actual slides, uh, like the, like the XTC talk, um, a few months ago. Um, and so like, that's different, of course. I mean, if you're going to be talking about how something already, um, done works, that's pretty cool. And mm -hmm. I do want to do more of that, um, just so people can pick up on when we're at right now and, and, you know, how we got here and where things are going. That's also why I just wrote that as a Linux article that kind of covers the, um, I think we already saw it. That kind of covers the whole story from um, from April this year to now. Um, so I do want to make more sort of um, produced content like that. That is like especially produced to explain to people what's been you know what's been going on or teach something because I think that's pretty cool and I should find uh, more time for that. But what I meant is like you know like it's not like I am um, saying that I'm reverse engineering <laughs> something and then I actually already figured it out before, right? Yeah, like yeah. That's the, yeah, yeah. Well, look um, at this magical thing I found. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, no, that, that absolutely yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I've not read this article, actually. I should actually go and do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, it does go over everything, doesn't it? So it goes from all the way from when Alyssa joined, from you starting on nothing, getting the triangles done. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I, I glossed over Alyssa's like first year because she already documented all of that on her blog. So yep, yep. Uh, people should go read that on her blog if they want to get the like the 2021 story. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I kind of started from where, um, you know, when I started working on stuff this year, and then the, including what Alyssa's been doing this year uh, until yep. now. Mm -hmm. Well, you got interested. You, jump back into some of the development stuff. You got interested in. Uh, in Rust, and as as I said earlier, uh, I don't mean this in a mean way, but you are kind of a bit of a Rust shill at this point. You definitely uh, like to proclaim the benefits of Rust. Um, I like to mention Rust fairly often in my videos, just because it tends to annoy people. There's a lot of people who get just very angry about Rust existing. Um, like, oh, just do it in C. C, will, just everything should be in C. Why, why Rust? What is the what is the benefit of Rust for the work that you're doing? Um, I mean, I think the easiest answer I have for that is the the example that um, when I got the Linux driver rendering a cube after that mm. crazy uh, <laughs> YouTube crashing stream, the next week on the next stream, I did one stream working on stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I had... Um, and then I had an idea like the next morning mm -hmm. to fix a problem that had nothing to do with Rust. And then I got a full known desktop running. So I went from the cube to a full known desktop in about two actual days of work. Um, because all the uh, concurrency and like memory management and leaks and overflows and race conditions and all those things that are what make um, you know, going from demo renders a cube to full desktop with a bunch of apps running at once, mm -hmm. um, you know, so difficult, just didn't happen with Rust. And like, this is a story that I just keep hearing from people. Um, it, it's really, it, it, you can't really explain it until you try it because mm -hmm. it's just that feeling that you're like the code compiled 
and it works, right? You get C code to compile, <clears throat> and then you're gonna spend the next day debugging it. Mm -hmm. Um, and with Rust, it's like it's gonna take longer to get it to compile because the compiler is gonna tell you how dumb you are all the time. But then once it compiles, it works. Right. I mean, right. of course, there's bugs, right? I mean, they're, they're, we're always, um, you know, sort of, um, uh, like, uh, I mean, I'm enthusiastic about Rust because <laughs> I can really see the benefits. It doesn't mean it's gonna magically make all of your code perfect. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's, you know. There's logic bugs and things that are going to be wrong, and I mean, obviously, I'm still debugging things in my driver. Um, but it's mostly at this point, it's mostly about my understanding of the underlying hardware and firmware and the reverse engineering, and less so about like coding bugs because I messed up. Mm -hmm. um, so the it's a very different feeling from writing C um, in terms of like how much time you spend before the compiler and then how much time you spend debugging and the most important thing is that when you write code in C, um, the, there's this like um, idea, this is the thing where like you kind of have to keep in your head all these rules about how everything works together mm -hmm. um, in the entire program. Because if any two parts of the program disagree about those rules, um, then that's an avenue for like, a, you know, something to go really wrong if that triggers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And because C doesn't make you um, enforce those rules, doesn't give you any tools to enforce those rules, and doesn't encode or even force you to think about those rules, then you don't, right? So you have you end up with this vague idea in your head of how it's supposed to work, but because it's a vague idea and the computer isn't helping you enforce any of it, you are going to make mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. And so Rust kind of turns that on, it, on its head by saying, okay, you actually have to think about how this is going to work, mm -hmm. but because... You think about it from module to module, right? You you write these rules, and it's built into the Rust syntax. It's just built into the type system, and to, it's built into how Rust works. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, the compiler guarantees that those rules are upheld by everything else. And so, when you write Rust, you think about one box, and as long as that box is doing the right thing, which might include even unsafe code, which bypasses mm -hmm. the Rust safety, but that's fine because like that unsafe <clears throat> code. <clears throat> only has to work together with the safe code around it and in that mm -hmm. one part of the program to make sure that it's not actually breaking. And then anything that uses that box um, doesn't have to care about any of that because the language guarantees that as long as just the unsafe parts are, you know, um, like doing the right thing, mm -hmm. then nothing else is going to break in a way that's going to crash or, you know, um, overflow a buffer or something like that. And so a lot of people say, it's like, well, if you're writing Rust, if you add unsafe code, you're just throwing away everything that Rust does. That's no. Um, like my driver has, I, don't, I think I'd add like a, maybe, how many unsafe blocks? And let me just grab for unsafe real quick. Um, Travis GPU, DRM, Asahi. There's about 100 unsafe blocks in my driver. Uh -huh. And it sounds like a lot. But like they're all doing one thing, right? In one part of a module. Some of them are duplicated and it's just... Um, you know, a pattern that is the same everywhere. Yep. Um, and so each one of those only has to care about one particular part of the code, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's I can I can I actually need to write comments. Not all of them have the comments yet, but I, I actually need to document all of those unsafe codes before I'm streaming because that's a Rust for Linux uh, rule and it helps other people understand why that unsafe code is actually safe. Mm. Um, but that's the idea, right? Is that you you go there and you think, okay, I can mentally prove that this is safe because A, B, and C and those A, B, and C are mm -hmm. in this one file that I'm looking at right now, and I can prove that it's like that. And that is something that someone can review and then come to the same conclusion, right? Mm 
Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, you say, okay, this box is fine. Move on to the next box. And then all the interactions between those boxes, all those like, you know, exponential ways that all of that can go wrong don't happen anymore. And that's where you get the, you know, the magic of rest. That's why that driver went from cube to full desktop in a couple of days, because that, that crazy web of things to go wrong when you have six apps using the GPU at once, there's nothing for it, for it to go wrong there in Rust. So what you're saying is that you just need to be a better programmer and see works. <laughs> that's, 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 the, that, that's what all the people say. That, that is what know, all the people say. Good C code. Like, I've yet to meet a good C programmer that can actually do what you can do with Rust. No, I, I don't think there's anyone who, who's actually like a really... Exp- Maybe there is, but I think most people make the argument that you know, you don't need Rust to do this. You just do it in C. I have a feeling a lot of those people don't have that that kind of experience working where in, in that sort of code where it is really, really important. It, these people may have experience with C, but may not, may not fully understand the problem space that they're commenting about. Yeah, uh, like... The thing is, we're human, right? We're not perfect, and so we rely on tools to help us get our job done. C just doesn't give you those tools, right? Mm-hmm. So you can you can tell yourself, well, yes, you can do the same thing in Rust that you can do in C, because by definition you can. You can also do it in Assembler. You can also just write the machine code by yourself, right? Like, why not use the tools that make your life easier, exactly. make you more productive, and make you make fewer mistakes, <laughs> right? Um, and so, like, of course you can write perfect C code that, and you can, you could even take a Rust program that already follows all these rules and like convert it to C. And as long as you don't miss anything, it's going to be as reliable as the Rust program because like the Rust compiler already forced you to design it in a way that solves these problems, right? Mm-hmm. So then it just becomes a, a, an issue of like translating every single thing that the Rust compiler does behind your back to C, which is possible. Mm-hmm. But then you're still taking advantage of the Rust design, right? So um, You've just re-implemented uh, Rust. Yeah, like manually, right? You're, you just turn yourself into a Rust compiler. <laughs> And um, so it's because Rust forces you to have that design, right? Mm-hmm. It's very <laughs> difficult to have the self-discipline to um, come up with a design that doesn't have any weird corner cases in C. You might think you can do a better job, and there's people who come up with uh, paradigms that, in theory, improve things, and you can do better in C++ with, with like, smart pointers and things like that. Mm-hmm. But nothing, you know, it's it's like a proof checker. Um, when the compiler is, is telling you, it can prove that your code doesn't have any of these problems. Yep, That's yep. not something that you as a human can do without spending an inordinate amount of time on it. Yeah. So just let just let Rust do it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no point just wasting your time. Like, we improve tooling for a good reason. Like, there's no point just wasting your time just, you know, making things harder for yourself just for the sake of it. Like... There obviously are merits to doing things in C, but in the same vein, there are merits to the advanced... Like, there are merits to the more... How would you say it? Like, complete... Not complete. The the better checking that the Rust tooling offers you, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, um, really, at this point, the only reasons that you see are because it's already a C code base, or mm. because... Rust doesn't support it on where on the target you want to support. You see because you, know, you have C developers. Yeah, yeah pretty much. And um, I mean, Rust doesn't run everywhere that C does, so it's yep. probably not going to replace C for everything right now. Um, but 
like there's relatively little reason to start a new project in C versus in Rust on a platform that has both. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's, I mean, if it's, you know, of course, there's the argument that if it's something simple, you can just do it in C and you don't have to care. Sure, but like, um, that's just inertia, right? You can still do it in Rust just by learning Rust. Um, but there's, you know, Rust can do almost everything C can do. I run into one, there's one thing, I have mm-hmm. one complaint about Rust, that well, there's one thing that Rust right now makes very annoying. Um, and I've, I've talked with the uh, Rust for, uh, for Linux people about this, and so I'm using a workaround now. But basically, Rust's idea of creating objects in memory mm-hmm. um, always puts them on the stack. And then um, you can move them, because it works by moving into some other memory location. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no uh, ergonomic way to create an object already at a memory location that you chose, like with a custom mm-hmm. unsafe allocator or something. Um, and so the problem is that in user space, it's fine. And the kernel stacks are like 16K. Right. Right. Um, some objects for this GPU are 64K. <laughs> okay, that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, so that's a very specific to Rust for Linux problem, uh, mm-hmm. although it can make optimization a bit harder on user space too. And uh, the compiler can easily optimize these things, but, you know, optimization is not something you can rely on. So it, um, you know, it helps if you can tell the compiler to do this directly. There's no good way of doing this in Rust right now. I have a ridiculous, horrific macro that kind of works around it by piecewise constructing the object field by field directly in the target memory. Um, and that's what I'm using, and it works. And, you know, that's fine. We work around language limitations there. Uh-huh. We, we work around, you know, problems with the tools we have. You know, C would have had its own giant set of problems if I tried to do what I'm trying to do in Rust here. Mm-hmm. Um, so every language has its pros and cons. Um, and I'm not talking about safety. I'm talking about just general, like, programming stuff. Like, I would have had to do some horrible things in C to get this driver done in C, um, <laughs> which Rust makes a lot easier. So it's not perfect. Um, but, I mean, there, there is um, a discussion with the wider Rust community about this. It's been an open issue for a long time. We'll figure something out eventually because um, Rust is only getting better. But, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a perfect language. Of course, there's things that are still, you know, um, a bit annoying. Uh, but, the you know, I spent, like, the first... Two or three days when I started writing the kernel Rust driver, chasing these sort of Rust pain points on Linux and discovering more of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm also kind of the first person to make, make a big driver in, in Rust for Linux, right? I mean, nobody had tried, uh, nobody had needed big structures um, in a li- Rust for Linux driver until now, because, you know, the drivers that people have written until now don't, don't need that. Um, so that's, that's to be expected because I'm kind of an early adopter here. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I got that right and i got into like writing the actual driver itself mm-hmm. and using all this tooling and these workarounds that i had built in the first couple of days that was really like a joy um and it's not just the safety stuff like even just error handling in rust is like one character you put a question mark on and it just like does the error return and uh, because it does memory cleanup for you you don't have to worry about cleanup so regular like c code is full of these patterns where like every function is like do something, do something, do something, do something. And after everything, it's like, if it failed, go to error. If it failed, go to error. And then because you have to do cleanup, it's like, if it failed, go to error, clean up this. If it failed, do the error, clean up that. And then at the end of the function, you have returned something and then error, clean up this, clean up this, error, clean up that. Clean up. And you have this like pile of, you know, error, clean up, like manual error, clean up that you have to do. And that right there is one of the obvious places you can make a mistake. Yes. And like people find those all the time. Um, 
that just goes away in Rust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and it also manages all the like you know when you get complicated functions, the possible go to paths get insane. Um, nobody gets that right in C. Sorry. <laughs> so with Rust, that was another thing that happened that um, I Zonotic was running out of memory, and it turned out it was just legitimately running out of memory. It wasn't a memory leak. It's just that Zonotic on Ultra without texture compression, which you didn't have yet, does not fit in eight gigabytes of RAM. <laughs> so that was just legitimately running out of memory. And, you know, the app crashed and the kernel killer went crazy because the priorities were wrong and, like, it killed the whole desktop or something. <laughs> the driver returned errors and the basic driver complained about out-of-memory errors. Nothing went wrong on the kernel side, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the out-of-memory paths on the kernel driver just did the right thing. And normally, that's another thing. It's like the first time you test error paths, something is wrong. Something doesn't get cleaned up. You end mm -hmm. up with another, mm -hmm. or you just have to freeze something. No, all that just worked. So that's the other thing with Rust is the error handling together with the, you know, implied cleanup of resources because it's all, um, you know, does that for you. Makes it so much easier than, you know, the whole C thing where you have to return an error code from everything and convert it and forward the error codes and check for it. It's literally in Rust. This is put a question mark after the function, and it does it for you. And if you don't put a question mark, it complains that you didn't do that. Oh. So, yeah. One of the things that I think some people tend to, uh, people will use this as like a disadvantage of Rust, but also will forget at the same time. Rust is only like zero point one came out in 2012. It's still a really young language, and. It's not a young language that, like, nobody's using. Like, there are there are engineers at Microsoft, there are engineers at Google, there are engineers at all of these massive companies that are using Rust, to, you know, to different extents. But this tooling is only going to get better and better and yeah. better. Like, C is how old at this point? I don't know. Too Very old. C I language... the first NC version was 79. And uh, then, yeah, the actual, like, ancient C goes far back. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Rust is 10 years old. There's... And as these, like... As projects like Rust... Like, there haven't been these really big, ambitious Rust projects before what you're doing, before what Rust for Linux is doing. It... Like, this tool needs to be tested on this large scale to work out where it... You know, where it has these um, inadequacies and what what needs to be addressed to bring it to this state where it's, you know, going to be properly usable for this. And it needs these people who are, I guess, who are trailblazing, who are trying to, like, find out where it's going to be inadequate, where it needs to be improved, and sort of what can really be done with it. Yeah, like, um, and a lot of it is just specific to like specific environments, right? So what I found with the stack stuff on Rust for Linux, um, I know there's like whole OSs written Rust now, mm. and they probably either, either don't have to deal with this because they have dynamically growable stacks or whatever, you know, it depends on the uh, design of the of the uh, OS. So you're always going to find new interesting issues when you start using a tool for the first time in a different environment. Yep. And the Rust project has done... Um, has made changes in response to Rust for Linux and, you know, what Linux needs from Rust. And Rust for Linux themselves, they've done a lot of work into how to use Rust in Linux and what the right way of modeling, like, Linux concepts is, um, how to handle Linux errors, 
how to make it convenient for the, the code and like what the right balance is between it looks like regular user space Rust code and it looks like kernel C code. Mm -hmm. You need to pick exactly, you know, sort of where that uh, line lies and um, and there's an art to that. So that's something I experienced when I wrote the, because I had to write not just the driver, I had to write the uh, general Rust support for graphics drivers for Rust for Linux. And so mm -hmm. that was the first thing I had to do. Um, and so, I mean, I, I haven't even got that reviewed yet, but, you know, it, it took a couple of iterations to figure out a reasonable way of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of work that goes into that. And yeah, of course, you're going to run into things and and uh, and we're still going to keep running into things. Uh, but that's that's the case with any tool. And it's the case with C. I mean, people run into weirdness with C all the time, too. So um, that's not unique or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Linus Torvalds merged it into uh, Rust um, precisely because like it's good enough that people can actually use it. And it's only going to get better. And one thing that I noticed is that even though there's a lot of random media attention, um, the Rust for Linux community is actually tiny. Um, mm -hmm. There's, um, you know, a relatively a small amount of people, even if you're actually doing stuff. And so it needs more attention from actual developers who might do stuff with this. Yeah. But the intersection of Rust programmers and kernel programmers is very small right now because, like, everyone's doing C in the kernel and everyone's doing Rust in the user space. So... <clears throat> I think what Linus wants to do and and also what I'm doing with this driver is sort of trying to get those two groups of people together more mm -hmm. uh, to to get this out there and more people using it. Um, and some of that is just having long discussions. Like we had a long talk uh, on the Rust for Linux Zulip about how safety works in Rust drivers. Uh, and there was a lot of nuance um, because like I mentioned about this box thing with safety, uh, unsafe blocks inside and stuff, right? Um, when you're writing a library in Rust, the box is the library uh, mm -hmm. or the module inside it usually. Um, and so if you have multiple modules, you usually want every individual module to be safe uh, by itself. Like you can't do anything unsafe from the outside. Yep. But with the driver, the safety, the um, required safety boundary is actually the user uh, interface because the user from user space can't do anything evil. Mm -hmm. um, but because it's hardware, when you get to complicated hardware like my driver, um, I can I can make every individual box as safe as is possible for that box to be. Um, but I can't make it 100% safe because at the end of the day, the whole driver is driving the hardware and there are complexities to like, to make it safe. I need to understand how the firmware works. The firmware is written in C and it's not nice little boxes like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in the end, the whole driver has to work together properly. So there are some properties like, uh, for example, when I submit a command to the GPU and there's a bunch of data structures in memory, those can only be freed when the command has completed. And that logic spans multiple modules, right? Because like the mm -hmm. command completion comes in through one and then ends up in another and all that. So yep. all that, obviously you could, like I could write code into the command completion receiver to say that you're completing a command before it really completed and that would crash the GPU. Of course, right? And like Rust <laughs> kind of helped me with that. But that's a very simple process for someone to understand who's looking at the driver, right? That's not a process where like that thing is going to magically say a command completed when it didn't because we got the flag and like you can look at every part of that chain and say, this is right. Mm -hmm. um, and so that means that from if you're if you think of safety as, you know, including the GPU in this case, but also it can include the CPU in more complicated cases um, with other hardware. Um, it's not as nice as user space rust because you can't say every individual block is memory safe, mm -hmm. but you're still 
like the number of things that are related to safety that span multiple of those blocks is much smaller. And you can you can think about everything individually and then very easily convince yourself that it's safe and that the whole driver is safe overall. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a discussion we had to add with the Rust for Linux folks, because it's like, how do we define safety for a Rust driver? It's not like a user space app. And like I had to both teach some of the Rust folks how this whole dra- like hardware thing works and why it's not like user space. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like that's why we have these conversations, right? Because we yep. need to all be on the same page as to how these things work. And at the end of the day, the, the, the thing that matters is that Rust is making this so much easier, right? Yeah. Um, so there's no there's nothing to be lost by saying, well, it's not as nice as user space Rust. It's still way nicer than kernel C, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've I've seen people who are very uh you know against Rust bring up I don't know if I can find it's one of the early one from one of the early emails um where Rust for Linux was going to be like when they were, I think it was one of the, their first requests for comments where Linus was saying it was something about you can't just crash the uh. I think when like uh, the code ran out of memory, it was just going to just uh, instantly crash or something like that. I see if I can yeah, find yeah. the email. You, yeah, you probably yeah, you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, I can understand that's like a, if... that's a big thing about kernel Rust is that a lot of the regular Rust APIs are disabled for that reason. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could find the email right now, but I can't find it. Uh, but you, yeah, you do. Okay, you do know the one I'm talking about, though. I was just trying to find it for like, everyone else. I don't know if I remember the email, but I know the issue you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I can understand like why there. There's like you have these people who are really interested in Rust, and then this section of like these developers who are very interested in keeping things, you know, stable and making sure everything they they know that everything works. And if these people are coming from more of a user space background, I can see why there'd be like a bit of a disconnect there initially. But that doesn't mean that it always has to be like that. You can you can share that knowledge and sort of bring this, bring these um, these Rust developers in line with what the kernel needs for its requirements. But um, one of the things that I can understand as a concern from people who are maybe a bit wary about the introduction of Rust is whether Rust is going to be a language that's around for a long time. Because it is still a really a really young language. Because um, you've got Rust coming into Mesa with Rustical. You've got the Rust for Linux project. There is obviously right now a lot of a lot of hype, a lot of interest around Rust, but you know, C's been around for all this time. We know C is going to be here forever. Where do you sort of, like, do you see Rust being this thing that becomes that, like, maybe not completely replaces C, but becomes a language <clears throat> alongside C? Or do you see it sort of fading into the background like many languages of the past, like Fortran and COBOL? They still exist to some extent, but no one really cares about them unless they need to be touching them. So the thing is, like, Rust is bringing in something very um, useful to the table, right? Mm. So the reason people are using it is because it does something that no other language has really gotten right before. Right. Um, and, like, you know, I don't want to uh, dig on any languages, but 
uh, just as a random example, like Go is sort of, you know, supposed to be another modern C replacement thing, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have the guarantees that Rust does. So you can do lots of evil things in Go to crash your computer. Um, so Rust um, got a lot of these things right. Yep. Got a lot of the can actually be used in kernels and embedded systems and low-level systems programming, right? And so people are using it, right? And mm-hmm. since it's an open source project, um, I don't think there's really a risk that it's going to just disappear mm-hmm. because that's only going to happen if people mm-hmm. don't use it, right? So if people use it, it's going to be around because there's always going to be someone to um, help out with the compiler, even if you know the quarantine disappears or something, mm-hmm. uh, because there's enough people using it that it matters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's really any risk that it's going to fade away unless something even better replaces it, right. at, which, at which point it's like fair. Um, because, I mean, these open source projects are sort of maintained in a feedback loop, right? And especially something as big as Rust is not something that's just going to um, go, you know, like um, unde- like undetected and, 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 and like end up unmaintained and nobody notices or something like that. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, we don't really have to worry too much about that. <laughs> well, that sort of replacing another tooling kind of did happen for, like, not to Rust, but Rust doing that to something else with um, the, what was it? The open, the uh, Clover implementation, the uh, open cell implementation Clover, right. where no one cares about the C++ implementation anymore. Everyone's focused on Rustical. It's like, well, someone could come along and deal with this, but no one did for like two years. Now there's a new one. I guess this is what we're doing now. I guess it's Rust. Rust is the future. <laughs> who cares about and that, that old? And the person who wrote the C++ one like showed up and, and tried to argue against the I Rust version too. of the MR. And the thing is like, this is just like pragmatic, right? Like everyone involved agreed that they didn't want to touch the C++ one mm-hmm. and that they much rather the, use the new Rust one and like maintain it and, and that it was a better idea. And like, mm-hmm. when it's, it's just about what people think on the project, right? Like this is, um, if nobody wants to touch the C++ code base and everyone is happier, um, trying out a new programming language, maybe there's a good reason for that. Mm-hmm. I can't recall who said it on that GitLab, but someone, I th- might have been Dave? My, yeah, I think it was Dave, who said, even if this, like, this Rust implementation doesn't end up working out in the future, and, you know, the same thing happens that happened with Clover, everyone moves on to something else, it doesn't really matter... It's not wasted effort, because now we know that it can be done with Rust. Now we have a better understanding of how to properly implement OpenCL, and we can do it better into the future, and, you know, hopefully keep something around that is going to be this uh, this long-term implementation. Yeah, that's also something that I talked about with Alyssa when I started working on this in Rust, because it wasn't merged into Linux yet, there was no guarantee that it was going to be merged. But if it never is, and and sort of the the thinking at the time was like, well, even if Rust never makes it into Linux, doing this in Rust first and then rewriting it in C is probably going to end up being a much higher quality driver. As I explained before, the same kind of process, right? Mm-hmm. Than if I just did it in C from the get go. Right. Um. So yeah, even that has merits. Well, it sort of takes you back to the the thing from before, where it's the C implementation is going to be a a harder thing to do, whereas if you do it with this, well, it's the reason why you started with Python, didn't start with doing it in yeah. in like C or whatever. You start with the easier tooling, and then if you need to go to something that is 
a bit more complex, then you can do that later down the line. But it's not like that previous knowledge you had is just wasted because, you know, you don't just throw away your, in this case, your reverse engineering knowledge of the driver. You still have that knowledge, so doing that next implementation is going to be easier. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be all in Rust, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Rustical is a Rust layer, but it still uses all of the uh, Mesa C nerd yep. tooling. It bounds it, you know, and it integrates with the rest of Mesa. I'm sure a lot of work and sweat and tears went into that um, because it's not that nice to make uh, Rust and C work together. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a lot nicer than C and Go at least, but um, it's well, still, also just know, to hook in with the... Um, uh, sorry, I was going to say, also to hook in with like what's happening with the um, the Intel drivers and Novo and Radeon SI yeah. drivers. Yeah, exactly. So it all has to work together, right? So when I started the Rust driver uh, for the TPU on Linux, I was actually using the MMU code from Panfrost um, mm -hmm. modified. That didn't last too long uh, because I realized I had to kind of redo it for other reasons. And at that point, it didn't make any sense to uh, keep it around in C. But had that not been the case, that might have been in C for a long time. That's fine, right? I mean, it's still just one part of the driver. <laughs> it's based on existing code that has been tested. And no one's forcing you to do the whole thing in Rust. Um, and there's still some random, you know, parts of the kernel API that I use that are not properly wrapped in Rust, and that needs to happen eventually. <laughs> but again, that's something that you can do incrementally, right? <laughs> so it doesn't, none of this forces you to say, throw away all the C and, and do everything in Rust, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think it's on the same on that. <laughs> Um, one thing I'd come, I don't know how I skipped over this earlier, but we're going to jump all the way back to the, um, the current drivers you have. And one other thing that wasn't directly related to the drivers, but it was the battery life. Um, the eight hour battery life that was estimated from the, uh, the battery controller. Yeah. Was that, so that was just the estimation. You hadn't, you hadn't done a, like a proper eight hour benchmark to see if it was properly gonna do that or yeah it was the estimate but i mean i think those estimates are accurate because they're they come from the battery controller and it's based on like power consumption over time and how much capacity the battery has mm -hmm. so it's not one of those random like um you know based on battery voltage things or something like that or based on like you know um software mm -hmm. it's literally measuring the current so <laughs> i mean i could do the test i just haven't bothered because i don't think it's necessary i don't think there's a reason not to trust that i mean maybe it's seven hours instead of eight but you it's, know whatever uh, but it's not gonna be like two right <laughs> do a development it's not gonna be two where, hours yeah 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 do a development stream where you just run it on battery see if it see when it maybe dies I should, maybe, maybe i should do it on twitch because i already did a stream on twitch where i was like uh collecting data ah, yeah. from what was it the yeah the power uh levels mm -hmm. and i just had like a for loop trying every possible input uh just to log the results um to try to figure that out mm -hmm. and i think i left it running on twitch for like 30 hours or something like that <laughs> jeez it's like watch lena's computer reboot the m1 ultra every 26 seconds for 30 hours <laughs> It's not the worst stream I've seen on Twitter. There was someone who, ages back, I think they were installing... I think they were, they were, they were compiling Gen 2. I think it was on, like, a PS2 or something. Um, oh, my! That sounds terrible! And it, they just had the compilation just sitting there. They, was no, they weren't talking, no face cam. They just had the stream going. You know what's funny is that sometimes... Uh, when I have to do like a Mesa recompile or a kernel recompile, um, especially kernel recompiles, and I'll do that while I have a snack on my streams, 
and the kernel recompiles like full rebuilds on my Intel old Intel desktop mm -hmm. like forever. Um, but lately I've been doing more um Mesa recompiles, mm -hmm. and those happen on the M1, and on the M1 they're fast enough that I usually can't finish a single stack before the end. And then there's the M1 Ultra, and that's just like, don't even bother. <laughs> it's gonna be done before you take the wrapper off. <laughs> The, the machines are very nice. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people that have a hard time separating the hardware that Apple has made from the general tech practices Apple has. I think we can all agree that the way that Apple handles right to repair is pretty terrible. But we have to admit that what they've done with, with their new silicon is very impressive. Like, this hardware is kind of crazy. It, it really is. And, like, the eight-hour battery life, a lot of that is just down to their power management. And that <clears> happens in hardware um, or it's just, um, you know, built into the system. Yep. Because um, people say, it's like, Linux has no power management. Well, it has some power management, and the hardware does the rest of it. So that's why it works, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, it's it's... It's really impressive, um, and I think a lot of it comes down to uh, both having silicon engineers that really care about the uh, project, but also a smaller team that somehow ends up working together. Because, um, I mean, there are some interesting horror stories of Intel and how it works internally. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it sort of feels like every big company kind of um, becomes more inefficient over time. Um, I've also heard horror stories from Apple, you know, sort of having people crunch like it's a startup, which also isn't good. Um, for us users, at least, the end result has been really nice. Mm -hmm. And the like that the silicon is one part, and the other part is just having the whole machine being made by one company means you don't have, <laughs> you know, 37 OEMs fighting each other for how to make this all work together. And like I can understand how, how it happens with Apple, mm -hmm. um, but it's very difficult to uh, compete with that. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the... the... Important things about this whole Asahi Linux project is even if it never gets to that like performance parity with the uh, the macOS system, it's going. You know, to... you know, it already runs faster than macOS. Some things, right? Oh uh, yeah, sure. Someone said a game ran better than macOS. Some compute workloads run better than macOS. Like Linux is a different OS from macOS, so sure, some sure. things it does better, and those other things run better. But the the point I was getting at here was. There's going to be a point where Apple no longer is providing software support for these original M1 systems. Yes. And at that point, basically the system becomes e-waste. But when you have something like Asahi Linux, and hopefully by that time, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're doing, a lot of the stuff the rest of the project is doing is being upstreamed, is out on other distros, and it's not like, hey, you have to go through this like weird extra step to get everything working. It's more like just grab a thing and you're good to go basically it gives this hardware another life and it's like you know i, I don't i can't remember how long apple generally does this hardware support cycle for but by the time that they stop supporting it's still going to be really fast hardware and it's still going to have a use case yeah and it's also going to be a very power efficient hardware so uh still very nice for you know like travel or uh like, you know, simple use cases and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and 
Yeah, that's also very important, right? Is that um, Linux has a support cycle that is kind of insane, right? Like, I think they removed 386 support recently. Um, 486. Like 386 was dropped. 486, okay. 486, yeah. okay. Four, uh, 386 was dropped in 2012. Which, yeah, so, even so. <laughs> we're talking like 20 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. um, nobody else does that. So that's a very good opportunity for um, the hardware to have a longer life. And like in my experience, um, it's not as useful for like, you know, the typical, um, you know, well-off tech person uh, who's going to be having the latest shiny anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot more useful to avoid e-waste um, by just making it useful for um, either, you know, for example, as a server you have in the corner to replace a Raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. Sounds ridiculous to say that today, using anyone to replace a Raspberry Pi, but, you know, 10 years down the line, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then also, you know, I've, I've had friends who uh, do things like take um, older secondhand computers and uh, refurbish them a bit, put Linux on them and take them to, like, you know, less developed countries and mm. run, like, coding workshops there and things like that. And that's really cool stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And you can really do that if you have an OS that supports the uh, older hardware and runs well enough to uh, to make use of it. Yo, so what is the the next big goal for what you're doing? Like, where do you go now? So the next big goal is releasing it. Um, okay, besides just, uh, releasing it. <laughs> and then after that, um, so it's going to be uh, working on the UAPS stuff to get it into a sort of, you know, should run Vulcan in theory, um, with all the features. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's uh, that's going to be uh, also working with Mesa to get these things tested and uh, adapted. Um, but also, Alyssa is doing a lot of Mesa work, and I've been getting more familiar with uh, Mesa's side. So I'm actually going to be doing more C code on that front um, because I can help out a little bit too. And um, and then, yeah, we. I mean, it's, it's just kind of a long road, right? But sure. at this point, I don't think there are really any... Um, big major milestones like the release right now mm -hmm. uh, because from this point onward, onward it's a lot more incremental mm. so I think the next big milestone would be upstreaming the driver or mm. starting to upstream the driver um, until then it's going to be a lot of you know chipping at things, individual things um, and there's probably going to be a you know okay we are like open gl3 compliant point and things like that and this probably disagrees with me there and for her the milestones are you know open gl compliance um versions um but like in the end all of that is you know like incremental work right you, yep. you chip at the number until you pass the test um and so it's the same with the uapi you chip at it until it finally gets to the point where you can't stream it and then we'll have a party about that um but yeah there, there's not going to be any um like planned you know, major thing after this, I think. Other than that, it's just working on things, um, mm. figuring out performance issues, improving the uh, the design of things, uh, refactoring stuff. Like we got uh, compressed texture support in, we got uh, frame buffer compression support in. Uh, now, this is working on like multi-sample anti-aliasing. Uh, and uh, there's going to be, you know, there was a bunch of performance stuff around caching buffers and um, batch tracking and a bunch of other Mesa things. And I'm not going to explain what all those are now, but, um, you know, th th it's a lot of stuff, right? And she's uh, she's been doing some crazy stuff recently. And all of that is going to improve the, the driver a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but there isn't, like, any one individual thing. 
I didn't think you would have like one specific goal. You seemed like you jump around with the different things that you're working on. You're like, I'm going to focus on this thing today. And well, that's done. Let's go this next one, this next one. Ah! There's, there's clearly a lot of stuff that still needs to be done. Um, a lot of stuff to, to keep you uh, entertained. <laughs> Yeah, and like you can't predict what's gonna take longer, um, because it is always a you know an unknown with reverse engineering. So, mm -hmm. like um, on yesterday's stream, I was planning to work on Mesa and get some test cases for tiling. I'm not spending the whole day getting test cases for the kernel site, getting clustering working because that was broken and it was a lot more. Um, it was a, I don't want to say complicated, hard to figure out than I expected. Like mm -hmm. the the output of that um, uh, like like eight hours or something part of the stream was a single line of code that was like a line X. So uh, multiple of two align times y to a multiple of four divide like plus something divided by something like that one line of code took eight hours to figure out to make it do the same thing Mac OS was doing right because I could just see the input and the outputs mm -hmm. um, and the alignment really threw me off um, but the different x and y alignments like why is x different from y what um, I don't actually know how critical like getting that 100% perfect is but I do know that when it was wrong it, it was crashing with larger um, render sizes on the MR Ultra. So it's all these little things, right? Yep. And you never know what, like how long the mystery is going to take. The power calculations took a couple of streams to figure out um, and a lot of data gathering. So now that I know how they work and the M2 was very similar to the MR Ultra, I, you know, I got the M2 done like the same day I wrapped up the MR Ultra. So that's that's another good thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, which I guess we should also talk about, about how much easier it's been to uh, get the M2 working uh, once all the other stuff was already working because um, a lot of people said oh when the m2 comes out you know, have to have uh, you're gonna have to start from scratch yeah i think we um, mentioned this the last time you're on um and i correct me if i'm wrong but the, what you'd said at the time and you can expand upon this uh apple doesn't just throw away their silicon each generation it's just a it's a incremental improvement over what they were previously doing that's that seems to be a pattern uh that they've been uh having for a long time now mm. um on pretty much all fronts and so for example i found an old like debug log from ios on some like a10 or something device um and sometimes you find interesting things on the internet and i had like verbose gpu debugging and it has so i had this giant dump of all the gpu state and everything under matched what i know about the firmware on the m1 mm. um, so clearly they've been doing this you know i'm sure the actual like data was a little bit different and stuff like the concepts were the same they haven't rewritten this. Um, so that's that's what we've been seeing with the new devices. And we knew M1 Pro Max Ultra were going to be pretty similar to the M1 because it's the same generation, just a different variant um, of the GPU. Um, it turned out that there was actually more work to get those working than to get the M2 working. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason was that those, uh, it turns out that Apple implements um, like a scaling GPUs in an interesting way. Um, we knew the M1 Ultra, people say the M1 Ultra has two GPUs because it has two M1 Max chips. It's actually eight GPUs. So it turns out that the M1 Pro is two GPUs, the Max is four GPUs, and then the Ultra is just eight. So they've been doing this sort of scalability um, since the Pro. Mm -hmm. And that required new support in the kernel to make it work. And that was what I was fixing yesterday. Um, it might still be broken. We'll see about that. Um, but the M2 turned out to be the M1 with slightly different structures and a bunch of different power management data, which is exactly what I knew was going to happen for sure. Mm -hmm. And zero backwards compatible breaking changes in user space. Wow. The same Mesa build ran on the M2 and the M1. Well, that gives you hope for the uh, the M3 then. <laughs> yeah. 
so I, I would also take a bit of credit for like preparing the UABI before we got to that point so, mm. so that it could fetch the GPU generation from the kernel and it like calculates the marketing name. So like it literally set M2 and the right version and everything with the zero code changes. So I'm going to take credit a little bit for that because um, it's nice when all that works. But yeah, there were no actual um, like logic changes needed. Mm -hmm. And the kernel needed a bunch of um, not logic changes. It just needed some structures um, which are different. And they knew that was going to happen because it happens with different firmware versions too on the M1. Yep. So that was already supported. I just had to figure out the differences and put them in. Um, and the power management stuff. Yeah, the power management stuff is just crazy. It's just like every time there's a new chip, there's like new numbers and new structures and new things where those numbers go. And we have no idea what most of those numbers are. Um, at this point, my job is just to like um, organize those numbers in a way that looks vaguely reasonable Yo. and put them into a file. Um, and mostly make it look like it's not a firmware blob because like <laughs> if you if you literally take like a memory dump, then you can get shouted up by people saying that this is some proprietary firmware blob. Mm -hmm. So like my job is to like at least break the, the the binary blob into a bunch of numbers that look pretty on the screen so that like you can convince people that it's not firmware. <laughs> and it's just a bunch of like power management curves or something, mm -hmm. which is not copyrightable data. This is, you know, hardware descri uh, descriptions. Um, so as long as I can do that and get into a form that like looks like, okay, we don't know what these numbers are, but they're clearly something um, that's not code, then that's fine. <laughs> and so I, I have to do that every chip. They, they're clearly something. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's like that. Like, the M2 had a bunch of new curves and a bunch of the uh, memory structures that we haven't seen before. <laughs> and it's <laughs> like, okay, minus one, some incrementing numbers, the count is the number of power states the GPU has, and then padding yep. with minus ones. I have no idea what those numbers mean. <laughs> yep, yep. Oh, but I need to give them to the firmware so I can do its job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, like, what? Yeah, I mean, I just put them into a table and call it unknown one, unknown two, unknown three, and what am I gonna do, right? Um, but this this is what happens with uh, reverse engineering, um, especially low level, um, like power management, mm -hmm. uh, because it's literally magic. It's just like magic constants, and unless the person who wrote the code tells you or you go reverse engineering the driver or the firmware to the point where you can understand it, there's no way to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like, how am I ever going to find out what that, what that curve does unless, um, like, I could spend the whole week changing it and trying to find what it does. It's possible it does nothing and maybe it only triggers when the GPU goes over temperature or something. I don't know, right? Yeah. Um, so as far as all that power management stuff, what I always do is um, I, I clean it up. I try to calculate everything that seems to be related to something else to avoid duplicating uh, data. Mm -hmm. um, I put it into at least the, the, you know, some vague form of a structure that looks reasonable um, with the data and the right types and stuff so it doesn't look like a hex blob. Yep. And then I implement it in the driver and send it to the GPU. And I take then a dump of the output and compare it with the same dump from macOS and just make sure it's the same yep. or yep. the same within <clears throat> running error. And as long as it's the same, I'm like, okay, this is good. And that's it. Yep. <laughs> So only the parts that change, like from chip to chip, uh, are things really have to work out. The parts that are just static, it's just like it's just data in a in a you know in a file in the yep, driver. Yep. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is let's say you get to the point where at least you're happy with it and you're ready to get things upstreamed. You haven't like you know sent it up yet, what is the process of actually getting something, uh, you know, merged mainline? Um, so it's not a very, um, you know, complicated process, but it's a little bit 
baroque to put it mildly mm-hmm. um so you basically just have to submit it um to the kernel mailing list and that is appropriate and send an email to the right people mm-hmm. um and in this case it's going to be more involved because of course it's not just the driver it's also the rust abstractions for the grm subsystem in linux yeah and it's also i depend on the rust for linux patches so if there's stuff there that isn't upstream yet that i still depend on by the time i'm upstreaming i need to block on that or uh help uh, push that forward um because what's in uh, rust and the kernel right now is you know just like hello world level yeah, yeah. doesn't even support arm 64. i hear there's new patches queued for the next uh round so you know it's it's they're clearly not leaving it there it's, it's gonna keep moving forward um, mm-hmm. but we'll see where we are when i get uh, to that point um so i pull in downstream uh rust for linux right now and so it's it's gonna be a long conversation and i'll probably have to start with uh, some of those abstractions and um pointing people at my driver and how it uses them so they can review that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this case, it, this would go through the uh, DRM subsystem uh, maintainers and mailing lists. And, and then you pretty much go from there, right? So there's going to be iteration cleanup. Even before going through that, I am probably going to uh, send it to the Rust for Linux folks to get some reviews from them first mm-hmm. and uh, figure all of that out um, because they also have to review it uh, in terms of Rust, um, but the DRM people have to review it in terms of graphics. And so, yeah, it's going to be a pretty complicated thing for mm-hmm. this driver for a bunch of reasons. Um, but, you know, the, the, the process is fairly spelled out and fairly, you know, like intuitive if you know the people you're dealing with. And that's important that I've been talking with um, the rest for Linux folks, the DRM folks and all that. So, like, it's not like I'm showing up out of nowhere with a giant patch. They know, they know I'm doing this and we all have been talking about how to do this and... I got advice from the DRM folks about how to design the UAPI. I got advice from the rest of the next folks on how to do some abstractions. Mm-hmm. I gave them some advice about how to think some, about some things because I learned um, stuff while writing the driver, right? So like, I'm already talking with people. This isn't some, I'm alone on YouTube doing my own driver thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much just um, getting the conversation started at that point. I, I think the uh, the talking to the the right people is the uh, is certainly a good call. I've I've seen uh, there have been a lot of cases I've seen in the past where someone shows up with like you know a fifty thousand line patch set. They've not talked to anyone yet. It's not even set up like it, I've seen some where it's like a fifty line a fifty thousand line patch, not a patch set. Um, they submit it and they're just like what. What is this? Why are you here? Should we mention Power VR? <laughs> uh, oh. Oh god. So yeah, it's a go- whole story, right? With the the Apple CPU being based on Power VR, and mm-hmm. to what extent it's similar, and to what extent it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. And Power VR started up streaming their um, open source um, graphics driver for some PowerVR GPUs um, in about the middle of this year. So after we only got most of the work done, but we did learn a bunch of stuff from that driver. Um, it also kind of scares me. <laughs> and I do remember the Linux kernel um, upstreaming post at one point being a single patch for the whole driver. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, basically, even once you have everything ready, it's going to be... Uh, sort of a a long process to get it all, all the pieces 
merged in that you need to make sure everything's going to be able to work. Pretty much, yeah. And you want to make it easy for people to review. Yeah. I'm not actually sure how to do this with Rust um, because, um, I mean, you, you get this problem with any driver that is big and large, um, but I think Rust um, exacerbates the issue a bit more because you tend to have more interdependencies between modules as far as getting it to compile than with C because the whole yep. type system kind of, you know, um, spans everything. So it's, I don't know how I would like, obviously I can't submit my current Git history. That has to be as question rewritten. And I don't know how I would break the driver into pieces that can be added and actually compiled mm -hmm. um, independently until the whole driver is complete. So my feeling is that I'm just going to say like one file per patch and make a nice long explanation of what that one file does. Mm -hmm. And then like add the make file at the end and say, okay, now the whole driver builds. Because I don't think I can do any better for this one. Mm -hmm. um, and that, yeah, that just depends on the driver and sort of how complex it is. Sometimes you can build it up in steps or in logical um, parts of the uh, of the functionality. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in this case, it's pretty much going to be just say, okay, please review each file individually. It's, it's already modular and split up in a way that is reasonable. Um, and we're just going to add the files one per patch. And, you know, at least that way we can have uh, email threads per, per module. And, you know, because the make file comes in at the end, nobody cares. It's just going to compile um, when you get to that point, yep. which is fine. As long as you don't break the build, it's fine. Um, so that, that's my idea right now. I don't know if anyone else will have any better ideas. I'm, I'm open to that. Um, but, yeah, in this case, I think that's pretty much the best I can do. I'm sure if you submit it like that and someone has a better idea, you'll definitely hear about it. I mean, I'm going to ask about this before submitting it. So. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, it seems like everything is sort of coming along pretty well um and this has been you know a pretty informative episode i hope that i hope that everybody listening has sort of maybe maybe learned something about what's going on with uh with the work that you're doing with the work that other people involved in the project are doing um and yeah i think we'll sort of end it off there if people want to get involved with the, the work that you're doing or just generally the work that Asahi Linux is uh, involved in, uh, where would they, where would be the best place to go? Um, so the main uh, community is on IRC, on OFTC. Um, so the GPU stuff specifically is in Asahi GPU, um, Asahi-GPU, um, but there's other channels for the other stuff. Um, they are all listed on the uh, Asahi Linux website, so you can find them there. And like I'm there, this is there, um, Ella's usually there, and uh, you know, a bunch of other people working on different things um related to the GPU are there. Um if uh you're interested in Rust for Linux specifically, you should probably ask to join their um Zulip instance, which is currently invite only, but they will, you know, give you invites for that <laughs> if you ask them via email. Um and then of course there's DRI Devil on OFTC, same network uh for the general uh Linux uh, GPU stuff. So, uh, if you want to get involved with um, what I'm working on specifically, then yeah, definitely join Sahi DBU and uh, talk to us there. Um, like, we're we're happy to get more developers and more people, um, you know, working on the code and fixing features or finding regressions. Um, if you just want to try the driver and see if it works, please wait a little bit until release because we have had cases of uh, you know people showing up and I was like, oh, I try this, it doesn't work. I was like, well, yeah, we know we're working on it. Um, <laughs> but um, so like, yeah. Uh, but if you're like going to be developing it and uh, you know hacking on Mesa or hacking on the kernel Rust side, by all means, just uh, just uh, join in and uh, 
I'll get you started. Um, and I do think release is coming pretty soon, so hopefully that's going to make things a lot easier for everyone. Because mm-hmm. um, right now you have to compile like three different things and and uh, get them all together to get it to run at all. And there's like an XOR conf and, um, you know, until two days ago there was a kernel command line after ran it on the M2. And there's, there's always, you know, the the difference between something developers are working on and that works on their machine with their setup and a difference, you know, yeah. and something that everyone can run on their machine. So mm-hmm. we're, we're getting there on that. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's at a point where developers can definitely help out. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're interested, uh, drop by. Uh, as for yourself, where can people find you and, uh, what you're doing? So, um, as you asked that, um, do I, do I get to, uh, to plug VD Social here? You can plug anything <laughs> you want to plug. So, um, I'm on Twitter at Lina Asahi, uh, but, uh, with all the, uh, recent, uh, chaos around Twitter, um, I thought that it would be nice to have an alternate place for um, VTubers to hang out and uh, meet uh, creators and other people uh, involved with VTubers. So Luda and I started uh, VT Social, which is a Mastodon instance for VTubers. Um, and over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to be working on the infrastructure to make it scale and all that. We got some new hardware already. Um, but uh, yeah, so we have that. And I am Lena at VT Social. Um, or if you want to go to the URL, pd.social slash atlina. And uh, yes, I'm on there. I usually post to both places, but sometimes I post to uh, Mastodon only. So uh, you might get a bit more uh, stuff there. Mm-hmm. And here's my email. Um, actually, you can just go on my website, asahilina.net, and I have like all my socials and uh, links there. Uh, so that, that'll get you everywhere. And, and yeah, I hang out on uh, IRC and also on the No Pointer Live Discord. Uh, which you can, you can also get an invite on my website. And so that's uh, No Pointer Live is uh, just a group of friends, uh, VTubers. We do uh, development uh, from uh, games to uh, hardware. We have uh, people across the entire spectrum. And it's just a group of friends. There's no, like, you know, agency behind it or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we have a Discord. So if you want to talk to us there, you can do that. I have a channel for me. And uh, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, but yeah, if you go to asahilina.net, that has all the links to everywhere. So you can pick and choose. I will uh, chuck those in the description down below. If there's anything that you remembered you wanted to mention, just send it to me. I'll add it in there. Cool. Thank you so much. As long as I don't forget, like, I forgot half Luna's links last time, but it's fine. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you put the website link on that has, like, all the other links in it, so then you're good. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put the other website there in case I forget other stuff. Um, is that everything you wanted to mention? I think so, yeah. Thank you so much for the interview. That was a lot of fun. Uh, well... As for me, you can go find my stuff over on my main channel, Brody Robertson. I uh, do Linux videos six day, six-ish days a week, usually. Uh, I've got the gaming channel, which is in the process of being rebranded at some point. Brody Robertson plays right now playing through Devil May Cry 2, and also... Wait, what am I playing? Kingdom Hearts 3502 Days. Yeah, that one. Um... I'm soon going to be doing a uh, collab stream with Rogue Ren. We're going to be playing through Pokemon Sapphire and Ruby doing a Soul Link. So come hang out for that one. It's going to be chaos. Neither of us can remember Gen 3 Pokemon at all. So it's also going to be a randomizer. So it's going to be a mess. Uh, As for this, if you're listening to the audio version, the video version is available over on YouTube at Tech Over T. If you're watching the video version, the audio version you can find on any podcast platform, Tech Over T, iTunes, there's an RSS feed, chuck it in your favorite app. Uh, I like to use AntennaPod. It's a great app. It's open source, and yeah, it's pretty good. Um, 
Yeah, I'll give you the last word, Lena. What do you want to say? <laughs> I need to get into more game collabs and stuff like that. It sounds like so much fun. I, I know Lena's <laughs> trying to get you to play FF14. I know, and like it's just an environment thing. Like I don't have a good setup for that right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I just need to figure out how to do that. Um, but we do play. Uh, I do have Mario Kart. We played that uh, recently, and uh, that was a lot of fun. So I need to do more of that and uh, and more collabs and uh, get more people involved. Mm. And then I can seek them into getting interested into uh, drivers <laughs> and rest. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Then I guess that's gonna be everything. So I'll catch you guys later. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. No worries, you're always welcome.